0: What'd you have for dinner? Yeah, nice late dinner. What'd you, what'd you have?
1: Uh, yeah. What did we have? I had like a chicken, spicy chicken sandwich from this burger place. I'm in Socrates now.
0: Oh, you're up there. Okay. Surprised you're not eating kale. It's not what people eat up there. <laughs> I eat kale, dude. I love kale. I'm into kale. I'll eat me I some kale. Mind. I got a shirt. Speaking of Socrates, I think it's from the Garden of Eden in Woodstock, which is that like healthy. Yeah healthy vegan vegetarian cafe there. And on the back of it, it's like a fist holding up a bunch of kale and it says kale power. And (laughs) I know, I know it's corny, but I do, I wear that shirt sometimes in a certain environment to like troll people. You know, it's one of the upsides to just being a big human being with a mustache and long hair is like, I don't know. Most people don't say shit to me, you know? And I like going to places where, you wouldn't wear a Kale Power shirt and wear a Kale Power shirt and just watch people give me the side eye and then I, like, give it back. I'm like, what? Motherfucker, you got something to say about Kale? (laughs) (laughs) Fuck out of here with that, you know? Like, if I just get all gangster about it. (laughs) I have another thing I've been doing, too. You'll enjoy this. It's it's really out of character. I, I kind of enjoy wearing the face masks because you can make faces at people without oh, yeah. them knowing, you know, I make all sorts of weird motions with my mouth now and stuff at people <laughs> to amuse myself. And I've taken on a new one which is if some, you know, cuz now it's becoming new if I if I had a passerby in the street I was trying to look friendly to, I used to give this like passive grin. Right. You know, like I notice you, hello. yeah, And you can't do that anymore. So now I'm starting to do like a little hand. Right. You know, like a hi, I see you, right. just giving him a little hand. But I've taken a couple times, and it's pretty useful. I'll see someone, and we'll make eye contact. I've just been going, howdy. (laughs) Like giving up a big, like deep voice, like surly howdy in the middle of the city. And just looking (laughs) like me. They just – I don't know. I just really enjoy the confusion that it seems to give to people for a couple seconds. They're like, what? what, uh, uh, Did he mean it? Is he Southern? What's happening? Uh, And then they're gone. And then I just chuckle and – Dude, I have have like
1: all these little ladies in my building that I've always tried to be super friendly to because Uh they're all about to kick off. And (laughs) (laughs) – Nice. <laughs> I mean real nice. I just we lost my I lost my favorite one a couple couple weeks Aww, ago. She I'm was sorry. an old stripper from like way back in the day. Really? And I always had it cool. in the back of my mind that at some point like I'd interview her for a podcast, you know. Sure. Right. Um and I never did and That's one of those, you know, one of those lessons. Mm. Like seize the moment. Anyway, always. I've realized since COVID, I kind of had this realization like fairly recently that with the mask on, I'm often trying to, like, smile even broader when I see them. And I'm wondering <laughs> if, like, they see this guy. Like, I haven't had a haircut in a while. Like, yeah. I've been wearing a hat a lot. Like, they may not even recognize me, and I'm just glaring at them. And they can't yeah. tell if I'm smiling or... No. It's because a few of them have given me funny looks, and I thought, oh, <laughs> they... Maybe I look really creepy.
0: <laughs> I mean, i have to assume if you're smiling even more and broader... It's got to shrink your eyes a little. Yeah, yeah. So you probably so look kinda, like you got, like, tiny little eyes. Like a piercing kinda, glare, I'm giving them. Yeah, 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 yeah. They don't trust it. Oh. They're like, someone looked at me like that in the 40s, and it didn't go well. <laughs> <laughs> you're flashing them back to, like, something awful. Should stop doing that. Just ignore You know me. what I was listening to today, Brad? I was playing drums to some Queen. My kids and- are so big on Queen right now, dude. I'm listening – you know, it's an overlooked song just because, like, you know, it gets played in, like, sports stadiums and – But We Will Rock You? No, that one's actually (laughs) cheesy. Um, And, uh, you know, it's at the end of Revenge of the Nerds, but We Are the Champions. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's such an epic opus of a song. Yeah. And all day in my head I've been singing, It's been no bed of roses. (laughs) No pleasure cruise. (laughs) Consider it a challenge before the whole human race, and I ain't going to lose. I'm like, holy (laughs) shit. Who can spit hot fire like that? Like Freddie Mercury. Verse two of We Are the Champions is hot fire. Yeah, yeah. Come on. Like, who does that? Who could even get away with that these days? And fucking project the way that guy projected, too. My goodness. So impressive. It's like every time I dig back into the queen catalog i just find something else that that pleases me yeah you know yeah how about you queen fan
1: i am a queen fan and like i said my kids have really been getting into queen lately they were getting into it before the movie and i'm not sure why but um Mm. but then they saw the movie and it was like forget about it
0: and just put them over the top yeah now speaking of kids Joe Sib has a lot of them. I meant to ask him in the interview about his old podcast, Rad Parenting.
1: I know it's funny. I meant to because I talked to him a couple years ago about that. He when he was still doing it, he called me with like some technical questions, and um, yeah, I meant to bring it up too. I don't think he's doing it anymore, but um, but you should check it out anyway. It's still available. It's an interesting podcast. Yeah,
0: there's some cool episodes. I really like found it cool. But it was great to have Joe on.
1: Oh my god, like um, way overdue. Like I said, yeah, um, he's. I mean, the guy. What ha- you know? <laughs> what hasn't he done? He's been very successful
0: at everything. You know. And he's just like a born entertainer. I, you know, I even said in the interview too. There's like Joe's always had this like natural hustling spirit to him. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where, I, you know, it's, it's driven by cool things. It's not driven by, like, the need for more or something like that. I think it's driven by his own restlessness and creativity and that. But between his last name and that kind of spirit, and then I met him, I'm like, how's this guy not from the East Coast? And then all of a sudden, he's just like, bro, every morning I wake up. And the sun hits me, and I just jump in the pool. He's like, you should try it, bro. I remember when like, we just signed a side one. And I'm like, bro, I'm homeless. What are you talking about? I'm homeless, and I live in New Jersey. I can't jump in my pool every morning and feel the invigorating sun of California. But, uh, I mean, he's just so awesome and so entertaining. I mean, I literally had, like, 19 more questions on my list that oh, yeah. I didn't get to just because, like— all you got to do is set that guy off, and he's just telling you a tale that's yeah. amazing. I, you know? I had some
1: really specifics that I wanted to get
0: into him with,
1: that, like some stories I hadn't heard. But um, we'll do it again.
0: We'll get him back. Even listen to this question. You'll appreciate this. I said, I have hilarious images of what Brad Goop was like. Can you paint? Can you paint a picture for me? A little. When did when did you old dogs meet? I even had I had a question for you because I wanted to see from someone who is who's deeply invested in Brad Goop what his takeaway was from the time. You know, I'm fascinated by you in the eighties. It's blowing yeah, the my 80s. mind.
1: Well, I didn't meet Joe in the eighties. I can say that. Okay, and it wasn't until the late. Although he did bring up, I don't think in the podcast, but I talked to him for a while afterwards. Yeah, and he mentioned meeting me when I was in the Goops, and I don't remember that. I remember meeting him right after I get, the Goops broke up, and I was playing with the Clowns for Progress because he really liked that band. Yeah, so I feel bad if I'm forgetting meeting him, but um, he may be he may be wrong. You know, who knows? It was a long time ago. Yeah, but then yeah, when I met him in the clowns, we did it. Tu- we toured together. We were always doing shit together. They like Jack's twenty two. Jacks covered a clown song. Um, yeah, he actually I didn't. Uh, he is responsible for my two children in a way. Wait, what? He introduced me to my wife.
0: Go on. Yeah. Oh, I see. Joseph
1: okay. introduced me <laughs> to my wife in the basement of Coney Island High. Really? Yeah, and it was at I think it was at a Jacks show. And it was a big night because like Joey Ramone was there and there was a couple other people like that that had come out. Maybe, maybe there was somebody else playing on the bill. Maybe they were out to see the Jacks. I don't know. But, um, yeah, he introduced me to Catherine and then I don't know if it was that night, but it was on that trip that he actually proposed to his wife in Times Square. Wow. Yeah.
0: So your guys, your guys love is interconnected. It was a big trip, man. Big track. That's cool. So you owe him one, huh? Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> Alright, let's get into it with Joe, because this was a fun long interview. Let's Absolutely. Do it. it's going
2: on Benny's buying a new house. They're trying <laughs> to jack him on the roof. <laughs> if he, he can't buy a new house because he has to buy a roof for the oh, people no. he sold it to
1: <laughs> find him some more royalties yeah. please Joe oh. please we have, to, <laughs>
2: yeah. we have to do another th- packaging of 59 sound even though we've run it into the ground <laughs> How many colors of vinyl can you press? We don't know, but we can find some more. <laughs> oh,
0: this Gosh. is perfect. All right, so be- we need to package together right now something I can get royalties from via side one and also something to boost me and Brad's Patreon. So oh, I can- dude, I'm in
1: it. Do Isn't we- it the single right here that we just we started writing? Dude, we just started
2: writing a song. Get that up on SoundCloud.
0: Come on. <laughs> yeah. Is side one ready to release this album it 's being released right now it 's too late it 's already out it 's
2: happening it's dude, charting the,
0: the virtual digital world is exploding my mind
2: Exa- dude things are happening and it 's this is out people are listening there 's a there 's already instagram there 's already people hating it it's it 's amazing yeah we have followers now they 're not following us
0: that 's how so quick it goes now
2: though That's yeah, that 's how quick it is
0: when you two we were, were young. young how long did it take to get a review back from a record? Weeks. Oh, you, yeah. had to, you had to wait for a periodical to, you had to send it out, wait for someone to do it, print it, let it get shipped to your house. You didn't even know if people liked your record for weeks. Now it I takes remember- what? Now it takes minutes. Well, you
1: couldn't release a record in less than three months. That was like, that was the, t- the minimum amount of time from when it was actually
0: finished. Well, that's still a thing. Side one right. would do that too. Yeah. I mean, I I think
2: the thing I remember though is I remember the first review my band Frontline ever got was in Maxim Rock and Roll. And we, it was one of those things where it came out and then someone would tell you, dude, you know, they talked about you in Maxim Rock and Roll Frontline and you're like, what? And then you had to go. And find the issue that it was in, and by the time you got to where the that where issues were sold, the new one was already there. So then you had to go find the old one, and by the time by the time you read what they wrote about you, you know, frontline played at, you know, Gilman street and were terrible. You're like, dude, why didn't you just tell us that I've been searching for this. And then, and then you kind of analyze, well, dude, do they mean terrible in a good way or do they mean terrible in a bad Well, maybe they mean it in a good way. Like they were terrible because they're so rad. Like,
0: <laughs> where did you go for your Mac? Cause I know like, You know, the the kids of the 90s were like, oh, we'll just go to like Barnes and Noble's. They carry some cool magazines. But like Tower Records. Where did you need to go for Maximum Tower?
2: Yeah, Tower Records, Campbell. And then, um, and then a lot of times you would, um, people sold it at shows. So there'd be like someone, someone having it, you know, you'd go over and get it. Maximum Rock and Roll. My magazine, like my Bibles were Maximum Rock and Roll. Flipside and Thrasher. Those were the three that I lived by. And then what I also had was these two radio shows – Growing up in San Jose, we had, um, this one station called KFJC that had vinyl rights on Thursday. And then Maxim Rock and Roll, I want to say had their radio show on Wednesday night. So like you lo- oh, Maxim cool. Rock and Roll was kind of more the NPR-esque vibe of the way they handled playing right. new music yes. and critiquing it, which was, you know, Tim Yohannan and his crew. And it was serious. But, you know, you found out about a lot of, a lot of different bands. You know, it was the first place I heard The Attics, first place I heard Peter and Test Two Babies, all that stuff. And then on Thursday night, you had the show that came out of Los Altos Hills, which, you know, went to San Francisco, San Jose, all the suburbs. And that basically was vinyl rights. And that show was killer because they also let you know who was coming to town, you know, for that weekend. So it would be like Friday night, you know, so-and-so's at the On Broadway, The Mab, and then Saturday night, there's going to be a show here. So, like, that show I really liked. And that guy's name was Alex Morgan, and he he played, like, everything, you know, all – just, it was all over the gamut. And, but it was also, it was looser. He'd have bands on there. They would play live. So like, I was really fortunate. Those two, those two radio shows turned me on to every single band I ever got into probably from like 82 till, you know, like 86, 87.
0: And you were a little, you were a little skate kid by then? Fully. That's all I,
2: dude, my dad didn't come to my high school graduation, true story, because he said, I've never seen you carry any books to and from school. You only carry your skateboard. (laughs) And I said, no, I have another set of books at school. And he goes, you're lying. And I was like, you're right.
0: (laughs) skateboarding was everything
2: (laughs) to me man that was my that was the only sport i was good at because i was a super when i was growing up like i wasn't i loved basketball i loved football my parents would you know they would have they never would let me play football so like okay that's not going to happen and then i was really into basketball i was really into baseball until you know people started throwing way faster than i was able to (laughs) you know
1: (laughs) deal with able to dodge yeah,
2: as far as basketball went, I was a short kid, you know, so I was like, ah, all right, this isn't going to happen. And then I also didn't like the whole thing of like, I went to all the practices, did all the, you know, drills. And then when the game came, the coach wouldn't put me in. I was like the Rudy on our team. Like it, our final game in eighth grade, I'm not lying in our final game in eighth grade. There was we were we were in the lead and there was only forty five seconds. I hadn't played a game in the entire season, and the Uh the players on the team protested. They're like, either put Joe in or we're not. You have to put him in. And the coach, he goes, "We got. I don't know. I don't want to risk it." And like it's, I'm like, dude, there's thirty seconds. He's like, nah. Like he he believed that I could ruin the whole season in thirty seconds, dude. This is
0: this is like Rudy too when Rudy becomes punk. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, like like, the story of him not getting into the game. It's the sequel, you know? <laughs> yeah,
2: they didn't let me play. And I remember, I'm not making this up. When I left, I'll, it was it was in Santa Cruz and I walked out of uh, the gymnasium and I literally was like, fuck this, fuck this coach's training. This is lame. And I had started skateboarding at that point and my parents were separated and I had started going to Winchester Skateboard Park on the weekends where my dad lived. And I just was like, you know what? I I just made a full on hard left and I was like, you know what? I'm going, I'm going fully into skateboarding. And then that just led to punk rock because the music they were playing at the skate park was it was the first music I'd ever heard that wasn't my parents. You know, like up until that point, I grew up on like Frank Sinatra, Jerry Vale, The Beatles, Fleetwood Mac. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I started going to skateboard park around seventh grade, it was it was like, what's this? This is nine nine nine. Wow. What's that? This is the Buzzcocks. This is Black Flag. Right. And I was so like, it was just it really became an obsession like skateboarding and and listening to punk rock and really kind of discovering it all at the same time. And then the the whole capper to the whole entire moment in, in in that time of my life was the best skateboarder in the world was from our hometown Steve Caballero. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I literally got to you know watch him go from amateur to pro, and you know be be there. It's like it be there. It's like being there, living in Chicago when Jordan, you're like, oh, check out this new yeah, guy, and yeah. all of a sudden you're just watching this amazing athlete and the thing was,
0: was he older than you? Did you go to school with him, or no, Steve was, Steve's
2: a couple years older than me, but like not a lot, like maybe two years. So he, he, him being a member, he was a member at Winchester skate park. That was his home park. And you know, that's where Stacy, you know, would come up. Stacy Peralta would come. I remember Stacy Peralta would come to, you know, watch him skate. Oh wow. And, and, you know, you just, you just saw him, growing and growing as a skateboarder and as an athlete. And then at the same point, he was my friend and, you know, still is my friend. And it was just, I always say like, it, I didn't really think anything different about it until I remember I went into like Safeway or something. And there was this magazine back then called Action Now, and he was on the cover of it. And that just okay. f- phased me. Like yeah. what? He's doing a front side invert and it, you know, his name and everything, and it was at our home park. And that just like, wait a minute, the, uh, next to Cosmopolitan like, <laughs> and like Time Magazine is my friend doing a Frontside Invert on the cover of a magazine. I mean, it, w- it was like seeing your best friend on television or something. Yeah, it was just sure. so mind boggling. I could, and then at that moment I was like, wow, like he's famous. Like, and you know, you knew something like that registered Big when like your parents, like even my dad was like, "Is that Steve Caballero?" And I'm like, right, "Yeah." yeah he's sure. like, "He's on the cover of a magazine," you yeah. know,
0: you know, they and had, it was just yeah. crazy. And what did what did Little Joe Sib look like? Because I'm imagining California, the '80s, Little Joe Sib. Did you have the full on hair, cut dude? I had, on I side? had no, like, dude. What I was, was looking dude, at here.
2: No, well, like when <laughs> I first started at the skateboard park, like my actual, like my whole look was bowl haircut mm-hmm. uh and my head was like way too big for my body and huge <laughs> teeth like i hadn't grown in like most people have to grow into their head like i right. had to grow into my teeth okay. i had to grow into my face i had to grow into my head like i had i had the i had the a head of a 40 year old man on a 12 year old body and it was a weird it was my balance was off and and uh. at a certain point No one ever said anything about it. And I look back at these photos and I'm like, whoa, what is going on here? This, this, Someone had to step in and go, hey, we want you to know your head is way too big for your body. And that might be the reason why your balance is off a little bit, but you may grow into it. You may not. But I think my parents just went for like, we're going to roll the dice on this one and hope everything catches up. And thank God it did. But that was my look when I went to the skateboard park and then... (laughs) <laughs> um, when I got into, uh, I remember I got into high school and basically like punk rock to me at that point, I was still living with my mom and growing up in Santa Cruz and Santa Cruz, is this little beach town. And we didn't like punk rock to us was a shaved head, a pair of Vans and like pegged Levi's and a flannel. Yeah, that was right. like, wow, man, you're pushing the envelope. And What had happened was my mom sent me to go live with my dad when I was 15, and the first day I went to this new high school that was this huge school, like in Santa Cruz, we had a student body of like maybe 500, maybe, and then all of a sudden I had a student body of like 2,500 And this is up in San Jose? This is in San Jose. And I'm just like, I remember I walked in, and the first thing, which is so crazy, my dad... Just, he just powered me into school on a Monday, like just walks up and goes, Hey, this is my son. He needs to go to school here. And I remember the, the principal and everyone was like, Well, you know, there's paperwork. He's like, Nah, he just, he needs to start now. And I remember <laughs> they go, Okay. And I went in and they go, All right, you're going to go to wood shop, which. Basically, that's like going to prison in any yeah, high school. Like right. it is like there's yeah. dudes sharpening things, they're making bongs. There's you know, <laughs> so I go in there and then the next period was break. So I'm sitting there and um, I I'm like, okay, so now it's the break period. What is everyone doing? Oh, everyone's getting food over here. Okay, so I went over and I remember I got a chocolate milk and a donut, and I just sat down on my skateboard and I'm sitting there, and this girl walks over. And, you know, she was kind of a skinhead girl, had the bangs, shaved head, you know, uh, a bomber jacket on. And, you know, she walks over and she's like, hey, um, what's your name? And I'm all, uh, Joseph Biondo. And she's like, really? Um, where are you from? I'm like, Santa Cruz. And then she goes, do you like punk rock? And I, that's what she said. <laughs> yeah. Do you like? She goes, do you like punk rock? And I go, uh, yeah. And then I'll never forget this. She goes, do you want to meet other people that like punk rock?
1: Right, perfect.
2: <laughs> it was like a scene out of like an after-school special, yeah, right? Sure, yeah. And uh, I go, okay. And we walk over. And then at that time they had like a quad where like, you know, all the classrooms around it and there was this middle area. And then of course in the middle area, they had this stage which at some point probably was for like graduations and for like events. But at this point it had nothing like that going on. And what was on the stage in the middle of the campus was the smoking section. They put the smokers oh, up there. Yeah. So I walk over there and on one side, it's all people and it's all what we call dirt heads. It's all dudes in Metallica shirts with flannels, little mustaches, um, feathered hair and like girls in moccasins and like a Motley Crue shirt. And they're all on one side. And then on the other side are all the punks and it's all like dudes with mohawks and skinheads and, you know, flat tops and like the rockabilly dudes. And then the, the goth people like, so like it was, it was like all of us were on this stage. And, and the thing that was, that was so crazy is when I walked up, like I'd never seen real punk rockers like that like mm. up until that point i'd only seen like the punk and disorderly album cover where i'm like whoa <laughs> mohawk leather jacket studs yeah, right. and when i rolled up on this stage it was like real life like they were all there and i remember seeing a dude with you know first dude i saw was spiky hair you know charged hair and i was like whoa and then i'm walking around and then this guy this one this girl's introduced me hey this is Joe Biondo i'm like oh nice to meet you nice to meet you ah, Joe this one guy recognized me from the skate park and then this one dude, this little dude, I'll never forget. His name's Terry Root. I'll never forget it. He rolls off on me. He has no shirt on, <laughs> uh, mohawk, leather jacket on. Like that's his vibe at yes. high school. No yes. shirt. Like, dude, this guy has no shirt on and it's 10 a.m. This pioneer, is nuts. a pioneer. Yeah. 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 No shirt, leather jacket. Yeah. And I'm, and he rolls up on me and, and I go, he goes, Hey, man, what's your name? And, uh, I go, uh, Joseph Biondo. He's all, Oh, no way, hey, man. You're Joseph. And I go, no, 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 <laughs> it's Sibiondo. And he's like, nah, dude, you're Sib. And I go, yes. and I'm just trying to, I'm like, no, no, it's Sibiondo. And then he goes, nah, dude, you're Sib. And then at that point, I'm just like, well, I can't argue with this guy. Yeah. Like, I yeah. don't know what he can do. He has no shirt on. Like, yeah. I'm, you don't argue with someone like that. And then I remember, like, then just people started calling me Sib to the point that one time my dad answered the phone and I heard him going, there's no Joe Sib here. And I'm like, no, no, that's for me. And then he's like, who's Joe Sib? And I'm like, that's what they call me. That's my name now, dude. And I remember yes. my dad said the best thing. He's like, oh, you got a nickname. That's great. And I'm all, yeah. And he goes, yeah, don't worry about it. They never last.
0: Oh, <laughs> good call, pops. Yeah. 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 Here I
2: am in my 50s with Joe Sib. You know, it's like, yeah, it's I love crazy. this
0: story, too, because it's like, it's literally, you know, your entrance into this school is what, I watched in like eighties movies of a California high school. I mean, it's, it's perfect. It, yeah. It's it was straight a trip out man. of a film.
2: Now I just, I look back on it though, this really quick. And like yeah. when I tell that story or whenever I think about growing up with Stevie, you know, I was just, I always feel so lucky that I was just in, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. Like punk rock hit the suburbs And I was just right there. Like if I hadn't have gone to live with my dad, I would have ended up staying in Santa Cruz, probably smoking weed and just doing nothing. And like in San Jose, at that time, it's just so hard to believe there was just so much music. So many people were putting out fanzines. So many people had a skateboard ramp. So many people were bringing bands to play. So there was like this weird thing that I just thought everyone did that. I thought, uh-huh. yeah, my friend Larry, he brought social distortion here. Of course, that's what, you're, that's what you do. You have a friend that's a promoter. Oh, my friend Denise, yeah, her photos just got uh, published in uh, you know, Max and Rock and Roll or Flipside. Yeah, because she's a photographer. Oh, my other friend, yeah, he started a band called The Faction. They're going on tour. Oh, wow, I'm going to watch them practice. Oh, he has a record company. I mean, that's how I learned how to start side one was from my friend, Adam Baum, who started... I am records and he was the guitar player in the faction. And I used to Mm. go to his house and sit into it. He had a little like a den that is, you know, their family's TV room where the band practiced and his mom let him kind of take over. And like, I just would sit there and watch him back. Then you had to call like a distributor. Hey, I made, you know, can I, can you take 60 faction seven inches? And I would watch him sell them. And then I'd watch him. I remember one time I thought it was the coolest thing ever. He, he goes, hey, man, I'm going down to pick up the new record in L.A. And and I thought it was so punk because they drove down in this van they had, loaded the van up with the vinyl, and then drove back the same day. And I yes. was like, I was at his house when he got there at midnight. Like, dude, you want to see the – it was the Darkroom album. And I remember we're just sitting in his driveway, and I'm like, dude, like, this is – you made this. Like, it was just so mind-blowing. But, like, that really led me to do everything – that I ended up doing in my life because it was just at that time, I didn't realize it, but it, it was like going to college because you just were around all these DIY kids that were just doing it themselves. And I just sure. thought everyone did that. I just right. thought that was the way you're supposed to do it. I didn't know any different.
0: I mean, when did you realize though, you know, you've always been someone so super active in anything you do. Like, when did you realize at that time that you? We're not just going to be a a pedestrian or a bystander in that scene and you're actually going to contribute to it in so many ways. Like, did that just happen or was that something you were like kind of driven to do? Do you mean
2: like starting a label and managing and, yeah, like, going, and like getting okay.
0: into bands instead of just being a skateboard kid who watches everyone else do it? How did well, you I mean, get to that I mean, getting, point that yeah, you were in it in it like that?
2: It, it, well, I think getting into a band, getting into a band, I always wanted to be in a band. Like okay. from the moment, yeah, I mean, I always joke around about it. I was the kid that would go to, say, the On Broadway or the Mab or the Farm or any of the clubs in the Bay Area at that time, and I would go from start to finish and see all eight bands. Like right, I yeah. I like – I. if Tales from Terror were coming to – uh you know, this. You know, if Tales of Terror were coming to town, I had a, I had to see them. You know, like I, I, I'd read about them. If M.I.A., yeah, they're from Vegas. I got to check them out. Whoa, this band named Screams coming. Oh yeah, dude, still screaming. First band on Discord. Need to see them. Like I wanted to see every band, and I would go nuts during every band if I was into them. Like if I was into the band, I was like, I was into it from you know start to finish. And then what ended up happening was I, I, I was so into music, I was like, I want to be in a band, you know? And like it kind of went from like just people were like, you know, like, dude, you should be in a band. And and I kind of I I never really had thought about it. But what had happened was this kid um left a bass at my house once. He was like, dude, my brother, he, he stole he, his brother like stole something from him. He's like, so I stole his bass. Can oh, I no. keep it here? And I was like, All right. <laughs> So then I would play it at night, you know, like, oh whoa, check this out. I had a, little, I had a quarter and I would just sit there and my friend yeah, yeah. came over and he's like, "Yeah, dude, this is how you play." I'm like, "Oh, really? Okay." And I started playing with this bass. And then one day I saw that kid again and he was like, "Oh, dude, my brother went to jail for selling acid. You can keep you can keep the bass." <laughs> okay. I was like,
0: "Really? All right." You know. That's awesome. So does that going- bass still exist?
2: No, the acid bass. You know, it's funny. The acid bass was the first bass for the Swinging Utters bass player Kevin what? Wickersham when they oh, started. No I sold, way. I sold him the acid bass, um, and Kevin joined the Swinging Utters. Wow. Uh, yeah, but I kind of, you know, there's so I some played guy bass. In jail
0: it, right now, who has no idea how much he contributed to the punk rock scene.
2: dude there's some guy that sold acid that was an entrepreneur in the wrong business in the wrong time his story his story is if he only wouldn't have went to jail he would have kept playing bass and that his music career ended
0: yeah could have Uh, been jason newstead right there
2: you never know you never know but yeah so for me i started out as a bass player i was in my first band playing bass and then in that band i you know i quickly was like you know, writing lyrics, writing songs. And then that led to, uh, in about 1985, I was like, I want to start, you know, I want to sing. And I joined this band called Frontline and I was the singer. And I sang in that band up until the time I moved to LA. Like I, I was in that band until like, I would say like 86, 87, 88, 89, right around there. That ended and then at that moment, I just had this, you know, I, I just gotten out of college. I had nothing going on. I got a degree in communications, which is the degree you get when there's no other degree to get. Yeah, right. You know, and it was, it was 90. I was, I was, I was oddly enough. This guy got me a job, um, waitering, um, at a comedy club called the last laugh in San Jose. Yeah. So like I was there. Okay. Um, I had no interest at that time of doing comedy. That wasn't even like, I was like, I want to be in a band. And then I just, at a certain point realized there was just nothing for me in San Jose and a really close friend of mine, um, from San Jose that had moved to LA. He was working at slash Records. You know, he was, he had been down there. He hit me up one day and he just said, you know, what are you doing in San Jose? And I was like, well, and he goes, Joe, there's nothing going on, going on there, man. And, you you know, if you really want to go for it, you need to come down here. And, you know, for like people listening, it's hard to believe, especially now with everyone doing a mass exodus from LA and California. But like there was this, at this point, it was like all the, all the record labels were there everything that was going on, you know, musically, it was either New York or, I mean, Brad, you know that, like, it was like New York Mm -hmm. or LA. That's where you had to be. Like, if you wanted to get a deal, if you wanted to kind of take your, take your dream to the next level, you had to be in either one of those cities. And, you know, when I came down to LA, I moved in with this dude and, and he let me stay with him. And that was really like, that was my, like, sink or swim moment, you know, like, Mm. all right, I'm going to go for it. You know, I'm going to go down there. But like, I only knew Steve Soto and my friend Brian, that was the only two. And I didn't know that Huntington beach wasn't near L. Like I I said, (laughs) yeah, I'm moving to LA. And Steve's like, dude, you don't live anywhere near me. I'm like, really? I don't. He's like, Joe, you're like two hours away. (laughs) Really? But, but I'm in LA. He's like, yeah, I'm not coming to visit you. You So I was living in Hollywood and the only dude I knew was Brian Ray And, um, and Steve Soto. And I remember it was just a, you know, full on, you know, awakening, like, oh my God. And I was in over my head, like the first weekend I'm there, my friend Brian's like, I'm having a party, you know, so it'll be great. You know, your first weekend here. And I don't know, I'm just still dressing the way that I dressed in San Jose, dude. Like I got my hat on backwards. I got my (laughs) shorts, my vans, like, what's up? Probably, you know,
0: GB8
2: yeah, yeah. John, no i'd grown into my head at this oh, point okay. like I'd gro- yeah no i'd grown into my head um but i'm just sitting you know i was there and like the first party that he has at his house i'm like holy shit those are the dudes from fishbone what mm. the you know like they roll in and then the bass player um from uh eric avery from uh jane's addiction rolls in i'm like what the fuck you know like and then you know and then uh later on that night, like, you know, Keith Morris or something. And I'm just like, what is like, I was just so, I'm like, these are who you hang out with. And he's like, yeah, you know, like these are my friends. And I was, right. I was just so, I knew at that point, I was like, whoa, this is a whole different ball game right now. And uh, I, I, I was like, I, you know, I remember I remember at a certain point thinking I was going to bail. Like I even called my mom. I'd been down there for about three weeks and I was like, this is, you know, I can't find a job. I'm just, you know, I'm just floundering here. Um, And I called my mom and I went for the like, you know, kind of like went for what, you know, you never admit, but like, yeah, it's lame. I think I'm going to bail, like trying to get her to go for, yeah, Yeah. I know you should. LA's lame. And, you know, and those people down there, you're different. You're this, you're that you're, you, you'll be more successful up here. You're right. right, You should leave. And I totally was trying to get that moment from her. And she totally went for like, I'm going to tell you this right now. Like, if you want to come home, like I get it. And you know, that's cool. But I'm going to just let you know right now. I think if you can if you come home right now you are going to regret it for the rest of your life like solid, you solid. you got to stay like just because you're you're not making friends like you got to figure it out you got to find a job you got to be you know you got to be that guy that I know you can be like you got to you know you got to go for it like you're there think about it you only got one opportunity like this in your life you're 23 come on like yeah. don't don't come home and end up you know just regretting it and talking yourself out of it. And I remember I was just like, all right. And then at that point I was like, all right, first thing I need to do is I need a new haircut. I never, I'll never forget that. (laughs) And I remember I was like, what am I doing? You know, like my hair, like it's weird because when it, I was so used to spiking it or like, I never had like regular hair. So I went (laughs) to this barber and he was on Melrose, and um I remember he was the first guy that I met that was living he he was this um guy that was living with AIDS and he was this first guy that I met that was going through all the treatments and he was like this like probably the third person like now I knew and he was like, wow. Hey, what's up? you know and I'm like, I don't know, you know, what should I do with my hair? And he's kind of looking at me and then um he's like, What do you think about this? And I remember he had like a photo of a dude with slick back hair. Yeah. And I was like, Oh shit. Fuck. And then I go, dude, fucking Mike Ness slicks back his hair. That could be cool. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden he's like, let's do it. And I'm like, all right. And then he fucking cut my hair and gave me some product. And, um, I remember I started slicking back my hair and then, uh, that was like, that was like, okay. Like it was weird because at that moment, like I was able to totally reinvent myself. Like no one knew that I was the guy that had the head that was too big mm-hmm. for his body. No one knew that I didn't play in the basketball game. No one knew that like I was in my band in San Jose that kicked me out. Like I was totally like this new dude. Yeah, and I was like, start. okay, yeah. I can reinvent this whole operation right now. And then that led to me kind of getting the confidence enough to like, I found a gig, I found a guy to get a room, you know, we rented this apartment and then it was like, okay, once I had that kind of nailed down, then I was like, all right, I want to find a band. And, and I was, you know, once again, I was looking for a band and there was a group of guys that were, they were looking, I was looking for a drummer and these guys called me and this guy's like, Hey man, I'm a drummer. I'm like, all right. He's like, we should, we should hook up. Like, you know, that that's kind of like what you did. You know, you you just there's like, you'd go to guitar center and there was these, this board there where people posted what they were looking for. right? And I ended up going up to these people's apartment and it ended up being the three guys in wax and they, they were yeah. like, We're looking for a singer. And I was like, Oh, well, I was looking for a drummer. And they're like, Well, we saw your influences. And it's so funny because my influences at that point that I wrote down. Yeah. what was, it was, was
0: this a flyer you had up? Oh yeah, dude. Full yeah. flyer.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. What and was the that bands flyer I put on. Like? Yeah. The, oh, I'll tell you right now, it said, you know, I, I was looking for a drummer and I remember the band that had just come through was uh one band that had just come through that that I went to see. And I just, I fucking loved them so much. First record just destroyed was the Goo Goo Dolls. I was like, Mm. Oh my God, you know, the hold me up record on a, on a, on a roadrunner. I was just like. What
0: they were doing was so cool. And that's kind of a punk rock record. People don't people Oh, totally. Yeah.
1: Dude, that record, I love that record. I got to say, and I've taken a lot of flack for it because it is the Goo Goo Dolls. That first record is sick. Well, it's the second record, Hold Me Up.
2: You're right. You're right. Yeah, the Hold Me Up is the one with the polka dots on the front. So that record, that record.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They were trying to channel the replacements and they just came up with like, yeah, a whole kind of other thing. But dude, that record was one of those records that I listened to. There was a part time of my life when I had broken up with a girl. I was like, I used to put that record on and listen to the whole thing and then like go, okay, what am I going to put on now? And I'd be like, oh, there's nothing else I can put on after this. And I would put it on again and listen to it like three times in a row. Oh, yeah. I get so much flack for that record though, because it's a fucking goo goo dog. Yeah, but
2: the thing, you know, it's funny because there's music in your time. And, and Brad, like when you say breaking up with a girl, for me, it was. You know, I had a broke. I had broken up with a, a girl that was in, you know, in San. O- like the way I had to leave San Jose sucked because the girl I was going out with, you know, bailed me. My band bailed me, and it was like, you know, it was just like San Jose was sending me a message, like, dude, your time is up. Like no one. I remember even the night I left San Jose, there was a party going on, a rager, and I was at this house that I lived at with like twelve dudes, and the whole house was bare except for one dude. And, and he was like the last one, and he's like, "Hey man, you're leaving tonight, aren't you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "Wow, L.A., you know?" And I was like, "Yeah." And I'm, and he's like, "All right, man. Well, you know, good luck." I was like, all right, bro. And, and, and then he goes, Hey, man, since you're going, you know, since you're leaving, can you drop me off? And I, at the party. And I'm like, all right. So now he's in my car. I got my car packed up at that time with all my belongings, which were a skateboard, a leather jacket, a boombox, and like, you know, a handful of clothes. I had my Ford Escort broken window. You know, I'm driving and I remember I pull up in front of the house and he's like, all right, dude, good luck. And as I pull away, it was just this house in San Jose. And it, it felt like everyone in Northern California were, was at this party, and, and I, in my mind, I had, a, I, like, I felt like, dude, they're having a party because I'm bailing. <laughs> like, oh. they're, they're, they're not doing the like. This isn't the party. Like, I, I know, and this is so messed up. In my head, I visualized they're celebrating that I'm fucking bailing not like huh. hey dude good luck like yeah good riddance
0: wow. <laughs> and
2: and i remember i was driving and like dude i was emotional and i was bummed and um and that record Goo, Goo dolls i just put it on and i remember i i was already into it but like like you said Brad i just listened to it nonstop so like right. i was so into them and then and then you know obviously all my punk rock stuff the clash and You know, that was super, you know, Ramones, all that stuff. But that was one of the leading bands on that little note I put. And they had just come through LA and played the lingerie and I'd saw them and I didn't know it, but the other guys in wax were there as well. So when I put the Goo Goo Dolls on there, they were like, that's our dude. Like, we got to meet this guy. So when I went up there, you know, we, we hit it off right away. And then I always say the best thing about like, I loved playing in those guys with wax because they were from Chicago. So it was like, they had a different vibe They weren't sketchy, you know, like Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'd already kind of jammed with some people from LA that just, you're like, ah, dude, this isn't my vibe. Like, you know, like I needed to jam with people that like called their parents on Sundays, you know, like that was just kind of who I was, you know, and uh, they were like that, you know, so it was like, it was cool. And then I remember, um, I always say like the common ground was like, we all love the clash. We all love the Ramones, but like at that point in my life, I was not into the replacements. And they like totally were like replacements. Soul Asylum, you know, like they're really turning me on to that. And then big time like um, Pixies, like I'd never, oh, okay. I you know, I knew about the Pixies. I'd seen the Pixies play. It was not my thing, but like I would say, the two bands that they just turned me on to, and like, and if you listen to Wax, yeah, it, it's definitely influenced. I was about especially to say the, the Pixie,
0: the Wax guitar sound. Just made a lot more sense now that you mentioned that. Soda,
2: Soda was so into the Pixies, so into the replacements. But the thing I, the thing I'd learned from them, because so I was coming with, you know, I remember I played them my band Frontline, like, and I thought, like, man, they're going to think this is cool. And they, they were like, yeah, you know, they they weren't impressed. And I was like, Mm -hmm. wow, okay, like, I thought we were kind of rad. But then when I started playing with them, I realized, oh my God, like these guys, You know, like Soda used to always say to me, like we would write a song or whatever. And like his whole thing was, is like, you know, if it feels like it's going to be predictable, if it feels like it's going to go here, that means we can't go there. We have Mm -hmm. to go the other way. Love that. And I was like, oh, okay. And then the thing that was great with being in a band with those guys was they were they on their own. They could have fronted the band on their own. They could write their own songs on their own. They could write their own lyrics. I remember a big thing was is they were like, you know, we write you know, each one of us kind of writes a lot. And like, you know, do you mind singing other people's lyrics? And I was yeah. like, dude, if it's, if it's good, I have no problem. And then, you know, as long as I can, you know, if I can also, you know, be like writing my own songs. And on that first record, man, it's like, you know, throughout the whole both records, we really wrote a lot together, but like I loved collaborating like that. And and the thing I loved about being in the band with those three dudes was the first time we ever played, it was like, it was so great to be in a band where like the pressure of like being the front man, like even though I was the front man, but like, I didn't have to like carry the whole fucking thing. Mm -hmm. Like I was able to, like I knew Dave, he, you know, he could talk into the mic and, and just, you know, everyone was into it. And then Loomis, he could say something, you know, like soda, like it was just, it was so cool being in a band with four performers instead of just like, okay, you're the singer, you're the guy that goes for it. And the other guys are kind of quiet. Like, you know, it, it was like, all four of us were into it. And then the best thing was um – was that all four wanted it so fucking bad. Like when, yeah. when we did a show, you know, it would be at the end of the night, like, yo, dude, fucking you, you know what it reminds me of, Brad? It's like Johnny T and Dino, like just always working it. Like, dude, I got this phone number from this producer. <laughs> Great. Hey dude, I found out we can get studio time over here. Okay, what's that guy's number? Oh, hey dude, I spoke to the booker. She said we could do this. Did you get her number? Yes. You know you know how those guys used to just oh, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> it was like they were scientists. And that's what being in wax was like.
0: That's so yeah. cool, man. I just I just recently watched the uh, rewatch. You know the wax California video, which is obviously like so iconic. Um, it, it, you know, at that time, who who actually conceived that idea about about a man on fire, and and how did how did you guys wind up connecting with Sp- Spike Jones to do that?
2: Spike came up with the whole idea. Oh, you know, cool. it was one of those. Yeah, it was all him. Um, at that point. Spike Spike and Wax's relationships is is super it it goes back to skateboarding you know once again okay. um Spike took photos um he was in the BMX he skated and at that point he was taking photos um, he had directed a few videos by the time, by the time he, you know, did the guy on fire video, he was happening, but, yeah. but the way we met him was the first video that Spike ever did was for wax. You can see it. It's this video called wax and it, it's our video for Caroline records. And it's this song called hush and Spike was our friend. Um, and we basically, we needed someone to direct a video when we were on Caroline and we had this friend of ours, Dan Fields, who's kind of our, like. Go to guy. He wasn't managing our band, but he, you know, he he ran a skate shop out of Chicago. Uh, he later on went on to manage Weezer. Okay. Um, he worked with Chris Cornell. Like he was just, but at this point, he was just a friend of ours, and he was the one that in- introduced me to Matt Hensley. So like oh, when I'd go to Chicago, yeah, when I'd go to Chicago, I would stay at Dan's house. And living at Dan's house at that time was Matt Hensley, and like you know. I would him and I when I when I was singing in Wax we just became friends you know like this is and it's so weird because you know he there was no idea that you know he would go on to you know be in Floggy Molly sure, and that yeah. you know I'd sign him and that that would be one of the biggest bands yeah, we worked with of course, but then. at that point him and I would just bond over like we both love like reggae uh, you know like old you know reggae sharp skin just all that stuff so I would go up there he'd make me cassettes and we would just talk music and Dan. Um, when it came down to doing our first video, we were like, yeah, we got to shoot a video for this song Hush on our first record. And it just, Dan Dan was one of those kind of guys He's like, yeah, you should have Spike do the video. And okay. we're like, yeah, that'd be cool. And I remember like Dan just had this persona and just this vibe that you trusted him. And he mm. said, yeah, Spike will do a good job. And, and none of us said, hey, has that Spike ever done a video? It was just, yeah, Spike's <laughs> doing the video. Right. So yeah. then I remember he comes out to Chicago and we shoot that first video. And you know, that's a story in itself, but we ended up doing that first video. But then what had happened by the time we did the California video, you know, there was a moment where, you know, we were on Caroline Records. We we made our first record for Caroline, and then Virgin Records owned Caroline. And there was mm. this moment where they went to our management and they said, Hey, check it out. We're doing this thing where bands that are on Caroline smashing pumpkins, drop nineteens, um, and, and wax, what we'd like to do is we'd like their next record, you know, to come out on, uh, Virgin. Mm. And at that time on Virgin, it was like Janet Jackson and, you know, that, that like music, you know, first of all, we are nothing like the Smashing Pumpkins. And, and, it, and in my mind, I'm like, You know, I don't know how's that going to work. Us being on like now the full major
0: was this kind of coinciding time wise with like the sort of offspring Green Day major label. No, that's the problem. No, that's that
2: you. That's where the whole problem lied. Basically, what basically what ended up happening is we make our record for Virgin. We, we go to Boston and we record with Paul Coldry and Sean Slade. They had just done Radiohead, Pablo Honey. Uh, Okay. And, and, and the whole reason we wanted to work with them was because of that chunk chunk on, um, on the song. Uh, you know, on Creep.
0: Yeah. On Creep. On Creep. Like
2: we literally, that, that single was out. That record came out. And I remember Soda was like, just kept we just kept playing that, and we didn't even play the whole song. We just kept yeah, playing that, that chunk, chunk, yeah.
0: which is so funny because <laughs> I did the same I thing. St- I don't know what it is, but I did the same exact thing.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know what's so funny, Benny? On Fifty Nine Sound, I always, whenever I hear uh, Alex do the, he does a chunk, chunk before oh, yeah. it goes right. in the chorus, sure. and I always used to say to myself, and it's funny, I never brought that up to you guys. I was always like, oh my god, that's kind of like that chunk, chunk in a, uh, you know, I'm a creep, you know, and I yeah. love that. Huh. So anyway, we uh, we end up making our record with those guys, and I was so psyched to work with them because they and it, for me, I was more excited because they had worked with the Lemonheads, they had done all the Boston records, and like at this point, I didn't know the Bostons; I was just a fan. So like going to Boston and recording in their studio and 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 working with the guys that worked with these artists, I was so psyched on. Yeah, and we turned in our record. And we turned it into, I remember we turned it in probably around like August to uh, Virgin. And I remember it's like September rolls around, October rolls around. We are having a kind of couple meetings and I'll never forget it. Like we got called in in November and they said, yeah, we're going to have a meeting. Okay, cool. And we walked in. And I knew we were in trouble when they're like, yeah. a virgin's attorney was there and uh, like no one from the label. And like, it was like a scene out of so Goodfellas. So not a meeting, like, an, oh, a, an
0: ambush. Yeah. It's and like basically- It's like Goodfellas when like- Oh, dude. So much. You know, so thought much. he was going to get brought up and he just got taken out in the garage, you know?
2: Yeah. I thought we were going to talk about 120 minutes. They're talking about dropping us. Right, and uh, yeah. <laughs> we walked in and I remember the president came in, this guy named Phil Corderaro and he was this Italian dude and he was super cool and he'd always been great to me. And he just, you know, he said to me, Joe, you know, it's, you know, guys, I'm sorry. It's just, we're feeling what you got. And cause at that point there is no offspring. There is no green day. There is no, like what right. we're doing is not like Pearl jam. It's nothing like what's happening. And we didn't even look like those bands. I mean, we had, you know, slick back hair and collared shirts and peg pants with creepers. Like right. that was our vibe. And um, when we turned in, you know, so they finally just were like, it's not happening. So we were dropped. And then at that moment, like we went into this weird, like this weird time where we were, we weren't on a label. And then it, I was kind of like, I slipped back into my DIY San Jose uh, just background. And I was like, well, fuck, you know, we got to put the record out ourselves, oh, you know? Okay. And of course the guys in the wax were like, what are you talking about? Because they weren't from that background. Yeah, they were like,
0: sure.
2: yeah, I don't know. And then, As the it was about a year and a half of just back and forth, and I finally got the record from Virgin. You know, I went and had a meeting with Phil Cordero and and he was, I just, I just said, you got to give me the record, and he was like, you're crazy, you know. And at that time, they were like, we just spent, I remember they were like, we spent fifty thousand dollars on the record, which was a lot, you know. And I was like, I know, but you got to give me the record, and he's like, why? And I'm like, because. You know, you promised me that you were going to take care of me and you're not. And this isn't fair. And I'm 24 years old and my life's on halt until you give me this record. Like, just give it to me. You guys aren't going to do anything with it. I remember he signed over the paperwork and I went to go get the master's. He actually I remember gave I it the, to you.
0: He gave me the record. Oh my God. Virgin. Dude, it's crazy because an appeal to humanity and consciousness actually got you the record back. That's like, not only did he, not insane. only did he, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, not only did he give me the record and total do a solid job. I went down. I, I remember I got the record. And at that point, you know, Spike had, he had, th- th- at this point now, he's gone from like, you know, this guy that's doing videos to like Beastie Boys, you know, Weezer. I mean, he's yeah, massive. Right, he's time, like, yeah. he's, fl- he's on the spaceship and he told me, when this had happened to us, he said, Hey man, I'm going to, you know, he said, Joe, you know, it's so a shame what's happened. You know, we ran into each other somewhere and he goes, look, you know, if you guys get re-signed or any, any way I can help you, I will do a video. Like I'll do it. And I go, really? And I go, cause I'm trying to get the record back. He's like, dude, I'll do the video. Like count me in, like whatever it takes, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be there for you guys. So now fast forward, you know, we're out on tour with wax and I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm like, we're going to go and support the record. And I think this is right around the time, Brad, that I meet you in the goops. Cause we came out to New York and like Degeneration put us on a show. And then like, we did, I think that's like when I met you all and like, we started, you know, doing shows out on New York. We'd been out there obviously because, you know, we'd started going there early, but now like we were out there, we were doing some shows and I remember touring on our own and like the record was out and, um, before I left to go on the road on this particular tour and support this new thing that we were going to do on our own, I remember Mm -hmm. we were practicing at this studio and um, Scott Whelan was there and I'd known Scott from when we both got signed, you know, and Stone Temple Pilots and um, you know, like he was a good friend. And before I left on this tour, I ended up giving him a copy of our record (laughs) and he was like, he was like, I love you're doing your own label. Like I just remember at this point, stone temple pilots was just massive Yeah, and right. he was, you know, so cool and just always super supportive of wax. But he was basically like, you know, they were getting in their bus and we were getting in this van yeah. and he's like, Hey, I heard you put out your own record. And I was like, yeah. So I, I, I give him the record and then he's, he's like, can I have a couple of them? And I'm like, Sure. You know, all right. He's like, this is so great. Like, this is your own label. And I'm like, yeah, but like, I'm not stoked on it. Like, he's way more stoked yeah, on it than I yeah, am. Yeah. And I, I end up giving him the record and I go on this tour. And while we're out on the road, I remember we, we, it was pre-sale phones. We get all these, 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 you know, we, we go to, you know, you couldn't talk to anyone unless you went to the club. Right. And I remember I called Karen, my girlfriend at that time and I said, I said, hey, you know, what's up? And she's like, oh my God, we've been trying to get a hold of you. And I go, what's up? she's like you'll never believe what happened last night and on k-rock and that was like the biggest station yeah i'm like what i go what happened scott Whelan took over the k-rock airwaves all night and in my head i'm like fuck good for him that must be rad you know like i you know what i did last night i slept on a couch that was on fire to stay warm (laughs) that's what i did (laughs) you know i'm looking at the band and and at this point you guys too and you guys know this from being in a band we're out in the middle of nowhere we're playing squats You know, and and the three guys in wax. I remember, I can see it right now. They're smoking cigarettes. They're waiting to get on the phone themselves, and they're they're ready to quit. Like they were, you know. The David told me, like, dude, I'm not. This isn't why I got. This isn't why I moved to LA to drive. You know, this sucks. Last year we're on 120 minutes. Now we're dropped. I'm not into it. And as she's telling me, Scott Whelan took over. You know, K Rock. She goes, No, Joe you're never going to believe it. All he did last night was play wax. And I go, what? <laughs> she goes, Whoa. he just kept playing that song, California. He oh, would play really? stone temple pilots. And then he would play California. Uh, he must've yeah. played. And I go, what? And she goes And this morning we woke up and they're playing it. And I go, what uh, the wow. fuck are you talking about? Crazy. And then it, I'm looking there and I'm, you know, at, at that moment and for every, like for the people who are listening, like what I'm trying to say is this, like, Whatever the Spotify playlist that you follow that has you know six million followers or a hundred you know one million followers, imagine your band is the first song on that playlist. Yeah, like sure. you know how they make those playlists like yeah. punk rock for the summer, and it's always like boom, you know some massive band or <laughs> yeah, like yeah, yeah. hey get your get your barbecue grill on right now, and it's like you know Creedence Clearwater right there in number one, dude. Imagine your band. It's like hey you know summer jams at two twenty, everything sucks except this music, and then it's like. <laughs> Boom, your band's the first thing. And overnight, you go from like zero followers to all of a sudden, you're like, Jesus Christ. And yeah. that was the equivalent of what happened being on K Rock because all of the other stations that programmed off K Rock started playing this band.
1: Wax. Yeah. I think so. People don't realize this, but like in the 90s, especially, K Rock dictated everything. What- everything anything that the, that k-rock played not only got picked up by all these other stations across the country but that's where mtv got their fucking vi- what videos they were going to put into rotation came directly from k-rock this was, everything this it, was still and, the and that's narrative. not speculation yeah, this was
0: still the narrative even for me you know yeah. many years so like, later this was still that yeah, important of a getting station. played on k-rock
1: yeah. yeah is like oh yeah it's it's literally the top of the pile. Benny, I mean Joe, when, yeah, we the, I kind of when we did the when we did the 59 yeah, Sound, you really yeah.
0: you really trying to trying to get it on there pretty hard. Oh yeah. yeah.
2: K-Rock K-Rock was the only station that wouldn't right. I remember when 59 Sound came out, I got into a huge argument um because they wouldn't they wouldn't add it and yes, everyone else yes. was adding it and then when we came and then when you guys came, it was like I remember you guys come through opening a first of 3 and it was like you guys Um, Alkaline Trio and a, and then Against Me. Who's headlining at that point? That
0: one was Rise Against. There you go. Alkaline Trio and thrice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So you're the first of three. And then I remember we came back and we headlined our own show, you know, sold out and it was just fucking insane. And I remember, um, at that point, it was like we had everyone on that single and it was, it was almost like they were too late on it. And it was just like, all right, it's already, it's already gone. It's already, you know, like we did it. We don't, you know, we don't need it now. Like, no, it's okay. We don't need your van parked out front. Yeah. Goodbye. (laughs) You know, I remember the, I remember they wanted to have the presents or something and it was like, no way. Like, yeah. dude, like, yeah. of course, you know, it's like, you don't get to tell everyone it's your party when you didn't want us to be at it. You know, it's like, yeah, it's yeah, <laughs> you know, and that was so, that. but the, th- but the thing I will say about K-Rock was when they did get behind, cause there were, there were records that, um, K-Rock would get behind, you know, and they would add Flogging Molly, MXPX, and it would, it was a game changer. Right. But at this particular time, it was like such a game changer because when I, when we got back to Los Angeles we not only were we dropped and be, when we left, but when I, I'll never forget it, there used to be this saying, and and this will totally date me was there was a saying when you were talking to people, they said, Yeah, I'll believe it when I see the deal. And then the next thing was, I'll believe it when I when you fax me the deal, like that's how you got a deal. <laughs> it wasn't an email, they would fax it. So you would sit there and they would fax a deal through. Now, a record contract, you guys got to remember a record contract is like it can be up to like 27, 30 pages, something like that, right? So then. I remember I come home and, you know, we, we, first of all, we're driving across the United States and we start hearing our song on the radio, which was fucking surreal. Cause we're like, how the fuck they even get it. So by the time we get to LA, our attorney goes, uh, you know, his name was Jeffrey Light. And he used to like talk like, all right, boys, it's a big, it's a things have changed. And I'm like, yeah, dude, one thing that's changed is you're calling me back. I've been trying to call you. Oh yeah, You know, like he was just so like, he used to, he used to have his, uh, his letters embroidered on his shirt. You know, oh, he's like, he's like, all right, guys, here's the deal. And he's like, all right, so far, we've got an offer from Lava Records. Jason Flom has a brand new label. We got a, r- a deal from Atlantic on the table. I got a call from Interscope. They want to meet with you guys. And you know who else called? Phil Cordero from Virgin. Ah, and they thought, oh, <laughs> ready for this? The people at Virgin, they thought they still owned the record. Phil right. had to tell them, no, I oh, gave it no. back. So they tried to re-sign us. It was wow. one of the best moments. In my life, when Phil's like, he, you know, we sat down and he's like, he's like, hey, and I, you know, I just said, you know, he's like, God, it's crazy how, you know, the things happen. And, you know, and I just said, Phil, there's, you know, come on. There's just no way we can sign back to Virgin. You dropped us, you know, that'd be so crazy. And then I remember all that we talked about, was we wanted to be on Interscope because at that point it was like Jimmy Iving, Tom Wally. They were the guys running the company. Um, And the bands that were breaking on there were like, it was Hole. It was, um, you know, uh, who else? A Bush. um, uh, What else? A Tragic Kingdom with um, No Doubt. doubt. It was just, you know, Wallflowers were on there. It was just like happening. And I remember it was so surreal. We go over there. And um, they go, okay. They want to have the. the our, I'll never forget our lawyer goes. All right, so here's the deal. We're gonna we're gonna sign the deal from Atlantic. And I go, really? And he goes, yeah. Because because I want to have this one done. And I remember, I remember my girlfriend and I, Karen. At that point, we I lived in Venice, and I do remember one night. Like I come home, and you know, it was so surreal. I we open up our front door, and. What had happened was all of those labels faxed the record deal to my fax number because that was the side one fax thing. And they were like, here's the deal. And we walked in and there was paper all over our apartment. (laughs) And it was, it was literally all these record deals. I'm sitting there and I'm like, holy shit. Um, this is nuts. So we go to Interscope and I remember it was so anticlimactic, you know, from the first time, you know, when we got signed to Caroline, it's like champagne and <laughs> right. everyone's high-fiving and all these dreams and every, oh my God, you know, everyone's just patting us on the back. This deal at Interscope, dude, we show up there probably nine o'clock at night, place is closed. We go upstairs, we walk into a room, it's Jimmy Iving, it's the head of finance, it's their attorney, it's their radio promo guy, and then this other guy, um, the guy that, um, Nigel Harrison who's the bass player in Blondie oddly enough he was our A&R guy and um he Whoa. was super cool he was the one that pulled it all together he was like a fan of Wax from the beginning and he so we go in there and I remember we sit down and Jimmy walks in and um, the band's there and we're all just you know you know thank you for taking the meeting and he's like all right so here's the deal um you know what are you guys looking for and uh, I remember it sounds crazy to say, but you know, we we're, we wanted $400,000. Each guy wanted a hundred grand okay. because we heard the chili peppers got that. Yeah. We're yeah. Like, yeah. That's what we want. And then he's like, all right. And then, and then, and he goes, okay, what else? And then our bass player goes, cause he was you know super like into like who was happening. He goes, Bush is on tour right now and, and we'd want to, we want to go. And at some point we'd, we'd love to be on tour with Bush. And he goes, okay. He writes that down. And then he goes, all right. Um, the radio guy comes in. He goes, okay, so the singles on this many stations, if you guys sign here, this is you know, this is what we're thinking we can do. And then at that moment, I go, hey, you know, um, we got to do a video for the song. And uh, Spike Jones says he'll do it. And I remember Jimmy's like, really? And I'm all, yeah. He's like, How, how's that going to happen? I, and we go, he's our friend. He's like, all right, writes it down. Okay, so Spike's going to do your video. You guys want to be on tour with Bush and you guys are looking for 400 grand. Uh, he goes, okay, give me a second. And then he, he he goes to, with uh, into another room where the finance guy's was, and we're kind of just sitting there. And you got to remember, dude, no one's talking; it's totally quiet. There's, I don't even think they offered us a drink. Like everyone's just <laughs> sitting there. Yeah. You know, we're just kind of like, all right, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Jimmy comes back and he goes, "All right, so finance, uh, the finance on it, yeah, four hundred grand, not a problem. Um, okay, Spike Jones going to do the video. Okay, we'll put together a separate budget for that. Um, and you guys need to be in Buffalo." At the end of next week uh, to start with Bush, (laughs) wow! And we just look at each other, and he goes, "Anything else you guys need?" And I remember we were like, (laughs) "No." Yeah. And and then, (laughs) then they go, "Okay, you're going to go in this other room." So then we go in the other room with our attorney once again, totally silent. It's dark outside. You know, you got to remember up until this moment, you guys, I am fucking broke. I have used every credit card to finance renting vans for you know the tour where we lit the couch on fire to you know to (laughs) making cds i've i mean and in my world i have maxed my credit like i'm a, i i'm like oh my god, i owe my dad the other thing was i borrowed five grand from my dad and i i go okay i gotta owe my dad five grand and then i have this credit card with about oh my god like ten thousand dollars in credit i'm you know like so all that's going through my head is i gotta pay that off and i remember signing everything we get it all done and then they're like all right welcome to interscope no no champagne nothing just everyone shook hands Uh, you know, we thank Jimmy. Jimmy's like, all right, you know, good luck, you guys. Um, you know, I'll talk to you guys when you get out on the Bush tour. And we're like, all right. And then, you know, they tell us, all right, this is how, you know, we're going to have another meeting to set up the release of the record, you you know, boom, boom, boom. Okay, cool. And then I'll never forget this. So now we're signed to Interscope and and it was so weird. We, we go downstairs and the band, we were so at that point, like just kind of over it, but like like realizing, well, you know what? We're back in, but right. like we, there was no celebrating. Like, I don't, you know, it yeah. wasn't like we all ran and, and go, Oh my God, that's us we were, you know, we just, everyone had been through it once already. And I remember everyone just went downstairs and they went their separate ways. Huh. And I remember I was sitting there and I was by myself on, on Wilshire and I'm like, fuck, I don't have any money to get home. Like I have no money. and oh, I, don't, I don't have a, I don't have a ride, I don't have anything. And then I remember the Nigel Harrison came down about a half hour later and I was still standing there. And he goes, Um, he goes, uh, what, what's up, man? And I go, Nigel, this is so lame. I don't, I don't have any, like, you know, there's no Uber then. I'm like, I don't even know how to get back to Venice right now, you know. And, he, and he's like, Oh God. And he looks at me, he goes, Man, you got a hundred thousand dollars, but you don't have any money. I go, No. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, and he I remember he goes over to his ATM and took out the max amount, which, you know, was probably $200, which right. in my mind was like, holy yeah. shit. And he goes, here you go, man. Just get it back to me when you can. And I remember I got in a cab and I get back to Venice. And I remember I walk into my apartment, you know, and Karen's sitting on the couch and she's just looking at me. And she's like, you know, at this point, it's like, you know, 1130 at night. And I sit down on the couch and she's just looking at me and she's been with me on this whole
1: yeah, like entire ride from, when yeah.
2: got, Oh my God, did she just, you know, we got dropped. We had a, you know, I remember, you know, it was, it was like we couldn't make rent. You know, I was still, you know, she was so supportive and just like, all right, you know, like this is it, you know, married to a singer in a, in a band. And I remember I sat on the couch and she's just looking at me and then she goes, so what happened? And I just remember I looked at her <laughs> and I go, we signed Interscope and we're back in like, it's 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 fucking on and she's like are you serious and i'm like yeah we leave for tour next week to meet up with bush and she's like what you know because at that point (laughs) that's like you know telling someone you're going you know i know some people might be listening like bush like i know it it you know whatever band is happening at this moment it's like what you know you're gonna go on tour with them and it was just like i was like yeah we're we're back in and it was just like it was like a rocket shit man and then and then about a week later um before we left, that's what was crazy. Before we left on the Bush tour, we did the Spike video. I called him and, and he's like, I totally want to do it. But the thing that was so funny about the, the video for with Spike was – Spike didn't know what he wanted to do for that video. We shot it on a Saturday, and it was like Monday, he didn't know, Tuesday he didn't know. I didn't even get on the phone with him until like Wednesday. And then Interscope called me and they're like, This guy, Spike, he won't tell us what he's filming. I mean, he's asking for I think he got like 400 grand or something. Oh, he's wow. like, he, yeah. he is not telling us what he's gonna do. And I'm like, Yeah, I know that's how he works. We're not used to working that way. And then, and then, and then they were like, Well, and I go, Look, man, he's doing it. But he was so on he, no pun intended, he was so on fire, they were just like, okay, okay yeah and i remember he calls me on a thursday night and he goes hey he's like what's up joe i go hey dude i'm psyched for saturday and i'm, I'm trying to be cool i'm like hey so like um do you kind of know what like we might do and i'll never forget he goes i just did a fire hose video and i go really he goes yeah and he goes um I I loved filming. We did some stuff with fire and we did it in slow motion. Have you ever seen fire in slow motion? And in my head, I'm like, no, like, no, I haven't. Yeah. It looks so cool. Yeah, man, I I think I want to do something with that. And I go, really? He goes, okay, see you Saturday. And I'm like, all right. So we literally showed up to the video shoot and that's when he goes, all right, so here's the deal. Um, you know, stuntman Dan is going to fucking run by you guys on fire. Um, Joe, you're standing here. Soda, you're here. Okay, cool. And and literally, the you know guy, you know he filmed it in real time, obviously. So they would light a guy on fire. The guy would run down Gardner Street. Do you remember speed. who the guy was? Yeah, I want to say his name was Dan. And we we dude, we partied with that guy because <laughs> yeah, across yeah. What was
0: his vibe, yeah. What was fireman? so vibe? rad,
2: dude. Yeah. That dude, you ready for this? This is where it gets crazy. Because of that guy, and I want to say his name was Dan. Because the stuntman Dan, that's like Loomis, Johnny Knoxville. All of those guys were really in like we they were like, dude, stunts are rat. And that's where like that whole germ for like oh, we're gonna really? do our own stunts. That's where all the that's kind of like ah. where the germ for jackass kind of started. Right. Because even in our first video, Hush. If you watch it, Loomis rides his bike into the front of a car. Right. And he was really into stunts. And one of the guys at that point that was like one of our friends, and he wasn't – he was just a dude that hung out. He always – he was auditioning for parts. He always had a book in his back park back pocket. He was pretty quiet. He was super subdued. like, And that was Johnny Knoxville. Huh. And we just called him Knoxville. And he always hung out. And he was always super cool, but he was not the guy – that, you know, we know now he was just, he was just another dude that hung out and drank beers with us, you right, know, yeah. and, and, and Loomis and him were super tight. His, his name was, you know, we used to call him PJ and, um, and that, you know, we're like, Hey, and then, you know, he was from Knoxville. So then, you know, Hey Knoxville. So then him and Loomis, you know, they were always super tight. And then, and then, um, that's kind of like, I, where I feel like that germ for, jackass and all that shit started from because you know obviously it was spike and it was johnny and loomis was one of those guys yeah. but um they were really into stunts and that guy dan was fucking cool that i remember after we shot the video because they closed down sunset boulevard which was insane they closed down gardener right. and like yeah. across the street there was this restaurant called uh, el compadre and um, we after the video shoot went in there and shut that place down. And one of the things that we were doing was like lighting the bar on fire, lighting Dan on fire. <laughs> like we were lighting everything on fire at that point. And then wait, what's, and then, so just know.
0: quickly, what's like, what's the process of of lighting a human in a controlled fire inside of a bar? Like what? Oh no, no,
2: he would just do it on his hands. So what so what basically what was going on yeah, basically (laughs) what was going on was for the video, you know, he would be in this weird retardant thing and like he you know, fire retardant thing, and like he had all this gear on, and they'd lather him down and all this stuff, and and then, you know, they light him on fire and he runs down the street. But in the bar, he was showing us like just you know, he was just doing like bar tricks (laughs) and those guys were stoked. And um, yeah, we were just yeah, it was it was this it you know the way, the way I always say it is like it's the, – the way it went down and the way it all happened is almost like a movie. And that sometimes when I tell the story, I'm like, wow, did we really do that? And I look back on it and go, yeah, we did. Yeah, totally. And it just blows my mind. It just seriously blows my mind. And
0: I feel like Stuntman Dan uh, deserves some mechanicals off of Jackass, you know? Yeah, probably.
2: <laughs> I think they used him.
0: Oh, they did? Okay, Uh, good. So he got to make it in?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, he was just, yeah, he was, that was, yeah, that was, that whole thing was insane. And, uh, and then, you know, the thing that made it even crazier was like, you know, six months earlier, we couldn't get arrested. Now we had like the number one song on K-Rock and then we had the number one video. And then, you know, like they had to do this thing every time they played it, they had to play a, um, an announcement that said, do not try this at home. These are trained. And it was the first time ever in the history of MTV that they had to play um, like this video announcement before our video. So that just made the attention on the video so much more. Right. And, and, you know, that, so that was insane. But the, the one thing I always remember was when Spike brought the video in to show us and the people at Interscope, the video, right? Yeah. So they've just paid for this video. They haven't seen anything. They don't know what is going on. You know, they go, okay, cool. They, I'll never forget. They show the video and uh, they show the video. And I want to say Tom Wally, who was like, you know, either the vice president or, you know, major head at Interscope, sure. super cool guy. Big dog. Oh, always He's cool. a big dog. Yeah. Big dog. Yeah, he's a big guy and super cool yeah. to us. And I remember Spike shows the video and I remember the video ends. Now, if you've seen the video, you know you know what the video is. For yeah. people that haven't seen the video, the band isn't in it. There's no. a guy on fire that runs by four dudes. Yeah. So if you don't know who Wax is, <laughs> you're like, wow, that's a cool video of a dude on fire. <laughs> so, you don't see what the guys in the band look like. I mean, if you knew the band, you're like, oh, there's Joe, there's Loomis, there's yeah. Soda, there's Dave. But like, if you don't, the band is not in it. And the first thing, I'll never forget, the video ends and everyone's quiet. Like no one says, fuck yeah. Like yeah, we're all just right. sitting there. And then Tom goes, can we see that again? So he plays it again and then it ends. And I remember he just looks over and he goes, why isn't the band in the video? <laughs> yeah, and we right. and then we go, we are in it. We are yeah, in, it. And see, us, like, we're in it. Yeah. And he looks, he goes, I'm talking about the band in the video. And, and I remember we are like, so at this point, now this is just, so here here's the thing you got to look at. So as a record company owner that I am, I totally get where he's coming from. Like I can get where he's like, I just fucking threw down a ton of cash and you're telling me the four dudes that wrote this song and that are in it are not in it. And the thing is, he even said... The the guys in wax, they look cool. They like we right. need people to see what they look like. Like that's how you make a band popular, so sure. that people start you know wearing the little beard that Loomis has or yeah. the little pants Soda has. Or all of a sudden you see six years old with their hair slicked back like
0: Joe. Like that's what we want. And I remember and for reference I, too. This is like way before the arty video thing. Oh, totally. Like thing.
2: And dude, yeah. and dude, Benny, you ready for this? This was the best part. I don't know who said it, but one of the people at Interscope said. I'm not paying for Spike Jones art project. That was their exact quote. And you're ready for this. Now, this is the band, and Benny, you know this. Brad, you know this. You know when you're a band and when you're young and you're full of fucking, you know, just fucking clove cigarettes and cheap beer. We were like, fuck that, dude. This video is rad, and like Spike doesn't want us in it, so we're not in it. Like, we totally, we stuck together. And we were like, nah, man, that's our video. And looking back on it, you know, what, you know, what ended up happening was, was okay, first of all, is the video iconic? Fuck yeah. But I'll tell you right now, the video became way bigger than the band did. Right, like, right. I, you know, it's like that video did become iconic for Spike. And I'm stoked that we're a part of it. But I will say this us not being in it. Um, was what made it fucking cool. Yes, like it, if we would have been like if it would have been cutaways to us in some little fucking place playing, it would have ruined it. Right. So I was right. I'm stoked that we stuck true with you know and trusted Spike because the video became iconic and um and I'm super proud to be a part of it. But I just remember the look on their faces. They were just so bummed. Yeah. They were just like, <laughs> "What the hell did you guys just turn in?" And I was, you know, we were like, "Fuck it." Like I remember they were like, well, we need to re-edit it. And of course, you know, we went for like, you know, new artist on the label, you know, well, if you do that, then we're not, we're not even gonna, we don't want anything to do with it. We are right. Wow. And then they put it out and then it fucking, you know, obviously it took off, but uh,
0: yeah, that was how that whole thing came about. Too fucking funny. I love it, man. Well, I want to get into some comedy a little, cause I know this is your passion now. You have what, a good, you're a good six, seven years into being a comic at this point, no? Eleven, Eight, bro. Eleven,
3: 11.
0: full-on? Wow. Eleven full-on yeah. years I mean, it's, of getting up. It's so cool yeah. and and such a cool shift in uh what you've been doing. So, you know, just for people who don't know, what what was, like, the the impetus for getting into it and how did you create your, your character and your act, like, going into this? Was it all just an extension of those spoken words or was there a different... Uh, intention in mind going into it
2: i mean i what happened was all my peers you know that were singers in bands or in bands they all started picking up acoustic guitars and i was like you know what that's not my vibe and and not not that i don't like that vibe but like i can't do what chuck reagan does i can't do it joe from my end thank god okay
0: we don't need another, we don't need another one, you know. No, you know,
2: it's like Chuck does it so <laughs> another
0: one of these drummerless fucking bands. You know? <laughs> Come on. I know you don't have to pay anyone on tour. I get it. Jeez. You know,
2: the other thing is though, and you know this, Benny from being in a band, it's like you know, it's, it's like the drum, a drummer's going to get way more of a phone call than a singer. Brad, you know that it's like, it's like, you know, if someone calls and goes, Hey man, we're starting a band and we want Joe Sib to sing, you know, like, all right, we're bringing a vibe to the table like we're bringing you know we're bringing combs we're bringing a lot of hair product <laughs> uh a lot of coffee sure. uh we're bringing a lot of dudes and bros like there's going to be a lot of no way dude i'm so stoked that we're writing this rad song it's fucking rad like Get i don't California know do we want you
0: vernacular yeah. yeah yeah like
2: he's going to be talking in a language we might not understand <laughs> right. we don't know yes. we don't you know like he's going to wear shorts in winter like what is going to you know like will he be able to survive and i think that I just, you know, I remember the, you know, no one was calling me to join a band right. and, and I, and I, and after 22 Jacks, I was just like, I was just, I had worked so hard with 22 Jacks and, and not that it didn't go where I wanted it to, but I was like, you know what? Um, And I remember this, you know, and I, I don't know if it's cool to quote him or not. I love him, but you know, Henry Rollins said something once when he stopped playing music, he said, you know what? that, I had learned everything I could learn from that, you know, platform of entertainment and I, and I not, you know, like obviously I'm not using words like him, but I remember I, I just was like, I think I've done that. Like I, not that I don't want to be in a band, but like, I just, I think I've done it. So I just stopped, but I took 10 years off. You know, I was like, you know, I didn't start comedy until I was in my forties and you know, I, I stopped and I just focused on side one, a hundred percent, you know, that was what I did. And then I remember, I wanted to get back on stage and I came up with this idea for some spoken word story that I wrote called California Calling. I right, did that. Right, right, right. I worked hard on it. People were really into it. And then that led to me one night doing it at the improv in Hollywood at the comedy club and I'd never been in there. I'd never even been in that place. Driven by it a million times sure, but yeah. I was like, yeah. And then the woman that ran it, this woman named Emily who went on to be the one of the main bookers at the comedy store right now. Oh, okay, She was like, punk rock fan into the bands and she was like, oh my god I love I love your spoken word show you know well, you do it at the improv and I did it and it was great and then that next night she or next day or something we were talking and she's like I was like I really want to do I want to do stand up you know and she's like well you know if you want to you know try to do seven minutes or six minutes here and I was like whoa seven six minutes like how do how do you even get the mic out of the stand in six minutes you know like I don't know so then um At that time, I did the show also at the comedy store. And uh Pauly Shore at that point, you know, I've known him forever. You know, we were he was always super friendly to me. When I was in wax, we were in biodome. You were in biodome, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. we were in biodome.
2: And um, I was in the dome, bro. And um (laughs) and uh and he was just, you know, he found out I was doing the show and he's like, buddy, you know, my mom built the main room for what you're doing. You should try it. And I did it there and it did really well. And then I remember I asked him, I said, you know, I want to try to start doing stand up." And he was, he put me in touch with this, the booker. And I went up there and I remember it was January 7th. Like I want to say it. So 11 years ago. And uh, I went up there and um, I did a six minutes or seven minutes in this, the belly room there. And, you know, at that point, you know, I was still kind of like figuring out, am I going to tell stories? Am I going to, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, it, it wasn't good, but it wasn't bad. Like I, I've always been able to get laughs. Like even when I bomb, I can still get laughs. Like I've never been one of those guys that like get up there and, and just don't get any laughs. But the thing I will say is that I've gotten laughs, but like, you know, once you start doing it, you know, you start asking yourself like, what kind of laugh do I want to get? Which, you know, that took me about, you know, eight years to figure out, like, do you want to get a laugh that, like, oh, cool, that guy was super funny, and he's totally, un. you know, I won't ever remember any, you know, think how many times you've gone to a comic club, and you don't remember any of the comics yeah, you've seen, right. but you remember laughing. sure. And then, sure. you know, it's like, what, what I, you start, you know, you start really thinking about like, what kind of laugh do you want to get? Do you want to get a laugh? That's like, Oh, that was funny. That was a dick joke. That was a joke, you know, that got the room to laugh. It was hacky, but it made everyone laugh. Okay. Or do you want to do a joke that, that, that the next day someone is taking your words and they're able to say them to a friend at work, the bit you did. Mm -hmm. And they, the joke is so good that that person has no, comedy experience gets the laugh like you know like like that's how great like bill burr is or like right, you know like a right, guy right, like right, chappelle like you can tell someone a bit that chappelle is doing and the other person will laugh even though you're not chappelle that's the test of like how great the dude's material right, is Because they're making you some know?
0: point that that really like yeah that really rings with you instead of just giving you a chuckle or something. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's
2: like, if sure. I could tell you, like, you know, if you and I are sitting there and we're just two guys and I go, Oh man, I saw Bill Burr the other night and he, and he did this whole bit about, you know, uh, you know, you know, when the, when the military gets to get on the plane first before anyone else. Is that really cool? Does that really make sense for the guy that just waves the flag for the person, to land on the air? Like, does that <laughs> right. guy get to get on right, before right, me? Right, right. And then, you know, like you laugh, you're like, dude, that is funny. I've never thought of that. You know, Yeah. um, th- you know, it's, that shows that that's a great bit. And then what ended up happening for me was, you know, I, I, I had, I had the confidence from being on stage for singing in band. So like, I wasn't, You know, I wasn't, that wasn't something I had to learn, but what I had to start doing is like, I was like, all right, what's going to be my, you know, what's going to be my vibe and my energy that people are going to relate to. And, Mm -hmm. you know, how are you going to find what they call your voice? And, you know, I remember people talking about it takes 10 years to find your voice. And I, in my head, I was like, nah, it it won't, that won't be the case. And, and it really was like, I don't really feel like
0: 10 years, dog. (laughs) No. <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah, yeah. and
2: i worked you know the thing i the thing i would say though is that when i say like finding your voice it's it's really finding out like what's your perspective on things what's gonna what's gonna be that what's gonna be that thing that that the audience relates to you right, right. you know because the thing is is when you go on stage it's like everyone in the room you know i always say with stand-up comedy they want to like you like you know it's right. not like a band they didn't come there to not laugh they came there to have a good time right. um but also it, it, it's really about how are you going to engage everyone in that room so that they can relate to you? Like, you know, like I remember a long time ago, like, you know, the thing about comedy, like if you go up on stage and act like you're a cool guy, you know, people in the audience are like, I'm, I'm not a cool guy. So I don't understand what this is. Right, you know, like, I don't right. get it. You know, I'm sitting in a comedy comic.
0: club. I'm not cool. Like,
2: exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of have to, Maneuver around that and, 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 and figure out like what, what your vibe is going to mm-hmm. be like. I've had, I remember one time I, I did a show in Portland and these two women came up to me after the show and, you know, and they go, oh, they go, oh my God, when you came on stage, we didn't want to like you. right right. you know like and and like i'm (laughs) such a people pleaser i'm like oh i know i get it thanks for coming and then later on that night in my hotel i was like oh wow that's really a big yeah that's a big statement like and and, and, you know they ended up liking the show but what they were saying was you know the way like the black t-shirt the slick back hair the fucking you know your whole vibe we were like oh my god we're we're gonna hate this guy right, right and then once you started your act and you're you're basically saying, yeah, I grew up with a head that was too big for my body. I didn't grow into my teeth <laughs> right. until about three years ago. Hey, what's up? Then all of a sudden they're like, oh my god, okay, got it. You're you know you're one of us. We're one of you. Here we go. Yeah, Let's it's go funny on you say
0: that because I mean you come to think of it, I'm going through like a list of comics I quite like in my head, and so many of them are pretty like, you know, either average, bordering on frumpy looking people. And it makes me think, for myself, I've always imagined, like, if I ha- I have a very bland clothing style, you know? And part of the reason I always have was, like, if I take someone my size, my hair, my personality, which is big and sometimes obnoxious, and then I put them in, like, cool guy clothes and sort of over-the-top stuff, it's just going to be too much. Like, it's too much for Way the world. Too much. You know? Way too much. And you think that balance exists in in comedy, too, huh? Like... Well, I just
2: think like, I think when you come out on, I think, I think what it is, is this, is that everyone, you got to remember when you're on stage, everyone, first of all, the first thing I always think is that like, they want to like you. Like they want to, they want to have that moment, but you also got to remember there's everyone in the audience thinks they're just as funny as you. (laughs) And Phyllis Diller, Phyllis Diller had a great quote, you know, God quoting Phyllis Diller right now is like quoting Ben Franklin had a great quote. (laughs) (laughs) You know, at the last supper, Judas said something before he got out of there. No, it's like, it's like, you know, I'm quoting these old people, but there was this comedian, Phyllis Diller, legendary woman, super funny, legendary. And she said, when you're watching a comedian and you say to yourself, I could do that you know what you can't that comedian is just so good that it makes you mm. feel and believe that you can't right, right right. and what i really believe is that's the truth you know when when i was growing up and i would watch comedians and you go wow man i think i could do that i don't know if you can you might be able to try but the thing is george carlin makes it so easy right. you know yeah. uh Greg Gerardo makes it so easy. Kyle Kinane makes it look so easy. And that's because they're so fucking great. Mm, that's yeah. where, that's where the magic. So my, my thing is, is that, you know, when, when I, when I get up on, you know, when I get up on stage, my whole vibe is, is that I just want to have an experience with the audience where they walk out of the room saying, man, I laughed I, I got what that guy said. And what I hope happens is that at the end of the set, they go, you know what? I left with more, I left with a different perspective. And for me, you know, my perspective is going to be, you know, I'm i I'm a dad. I'm a father. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I've been in the same relationship for 30 years. Uh, you know, I have a teenager. Um, I have a teenage daughter. I'm basically in a relationship with three people that don't like me. You know, like I have to, I have to still put a smile on, you know, like that's, right, you know, right. like, you know, like those are, that's my perspective and my, my own journey. And, and what I love and I, you know, I've had this happen is when the end of the night, you know, I've been on, I remember a couple, you know, there's been times where I've been on some banging shows at the improv with banging comedians. I mean, I remember one night I had to follow Patton Oswald, Sarah Silverman, and Whitney Cummings. I was wow. the last one to go on Goodness. because they all were like, I want to go on and get out of here. Yeah. But I remember going on, you know, with big lineups like that. And I remember one night a real, like, it's like, a, it's like almost the universe sent me a message was I was standing by the door after the show and everyone's coming by and you know, you're, Oh, thanks. that Okay. You know, you're kind of, you know, shaking hands, whatever. And this one couple comes over to me and they go, we liked you the best. And I go, and it was on a lineup with like just, you know, everyone on there, just like, okay, Conan O'Brien, uh, this person was on Fallon. Uh, this person has a special. And I, I just because this is the record guy in me, Benny and, and Brad, <laughs> I go, I go, can you tell me why? Right. Yeah. And they I go, tell me why you liked me the best. Give me which an interview
0: here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And you know what they said? Because you talked about things that we understand and that we're going through. Right. Like you and I remember at that point the other comics are talking about Then I'm on this plane and I flew out and I'm, I'm sitting there with, you know, I'm sitting there with Scorsese yeah, and he says right, to me, right, you know, right, and they're right. like, they're like, you know, they're like, dude, I'm not sitting with Scorsese, so, but yeah, what I do understand
0: become a little unattainable.
2: Yeah. But sure. what I do understand is, yeah. um Why is, you know, why, why can't I feed my kids McDonald's anymore? And why is, you know, McDonald's a treat for me and a threat for my kids? Like, <laughs> right. why is that? Like, how do my kids know about GMOs? You know, how do I didn't know, you know, that gluten isn't a metal band from Germany until recently. Like (laughs) I, I didn't know that. And those, those bits are the things that I feel connect with the audience Mm -hmm. that are into what I'm doing. And, and that was like, I remember that was a huge insight too. Okay. Then you know what I, you know, like, like Richard Pryor used to always say, like, you know he said, just whatever, whatever, you know, tell the truth because the truth will be funny. Yeah. And sometimes, sometimes, you know, you try to write a joke and, and it is, it's funny, but it's just not believable. Mm, you know, it's like, dude, right. I know what you're talking. You know what? That didn't happen. Yeah. But right, when I right. tell a story, you know, when I tell a story about, you know, uh trying to help my son with, you know, math homework and, and not understanding it and getting upset and, you know, mm-hmm. saying to him, like, you know, He's like, I need a tutor. And then I said, Well, why don't you just cheat? Like, what happened to that? Doesn't anyone (laughs) cheat anymore? No, we want to learn it. Why? You know, like those are real things I've said, you know, not proud of it. But, but the thing that, the thing that I realized was, you know, you have to just be honest with really what's going on. And when you're honest and you find that funny in there, that's the stuff that's, gold with the audience because they'll come up afterwards and go, Oh my God, when you said your daughter said, you know, like I used to tell this bit about my daughter when she was a teenager, like super, she was about 13 and I would drive her to school and I was so psyched. Like I got my daughter in the car and I got the, here we go, honey. And then she just looked at me and goes, dad, I don't talk in a car. And I was like, (laughs) what? And she's like, no, I don't talk in a car. And I and it was like a Dr. Seuss yeah. moment, like, don't talk in a car. I won't talk when we go far. I do not talk in a hat. And you're like, dude, here we what are, are you talking actually, about? Yeah. Yeah. And it was funny because <laughs> I had all these, I had all these people would come up to me and they go, Oh my God, my daughter said the same thing. Or my son, you know, just like, you know, it's um yeah, you know, it's it's so it's, it's, it's it's one of those things where it just connects. Um and that's, that's my favorite part. And it's addicting, man. Yeah. It's like, I never have done any drugs in my entire life. And there's parts of me sometimes that I, I go, Oh my God, I've been doing stand up for 11 years. And it's like, it's like now I understand when I, you know, when you hear about the guy like that does the heroin and he goes to the really sketchy part of town. That's me. Going to tell jokes sometimes. Right, like yeah. I'm going to go to La Brea. I'm going to go to La Brea in the sandwich <laughs> shop. That's sometimes a car repair. And at eight o'clock, they set up chairs so I can tell some jokes to eight people so I can get a laugh from them. And then I'm going to turn around and drive over to this place and tell jokes at, you know, at, at this club at two, you know, it's like, you're always trying to find that, that spot to, to do new material or tell jokes or try to tweak a word. And, and up until the pandemic, man, I, it's like, it's just so addicting but you know i didn't realize how much it took over my mind like you know like i've realized now just stand up it, it it if you're really doing it 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 it'll seriously blur out everyone around you your wife your kids your friends because you're just always you're always thinking about like that spot you have that night and then you're like how are you going to do these words and you really have to be able to separate that from, from you know, your other life because it's, it's so addicting and, and it's also, you want to get good at it and then you just start, you know, it, it, you know, and, and if you're going to get good, I mean, I guarantee you any comic like that we just mentioned, you know, all those guys that I mentioned, all those women I mentioned, it's like all of them, it's, they would definitely say, yeah, it's, it's, it's an obsessive thing that just controls your your mind because you have to it's not like music where we can like, you know, all three of us could jam together and we go, okay, cool. That sounded good. Um, work on your part. I'll work on mine. And then Friday night's the gig. Like, and we would be good. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. We would be good. good enough. But stand up. It's not like that. You have to have a crowd. You have to have an audience. Yeah. And you know, I didn't realize that until this pandemic happened, uh, you know, with wow, how, you know, like not having the audience and, um, and not having that interaction is just, it's, it's strange. And, you know, and honestly, I don't know if we ever will, you know, I don't know. I mean, I did, Who knows? I've did. i been doing outside shows. Yeah. I did a show at a drive in. Um, you know, I, I feel like that's a band-aid though, sure. for where we're going. But that brings I mean, in something
0: just- I-, I wanted to talk about with you. Cause I don't get it. I love comedy. It's like been a huge part of my life from when I was a kid until now, I'm always seeking out new comics and albums and I've always felt there was something about my internal conflict and struggle that made me relate not just to these people, but to the stories they were telling. And you talk about how it kind of becomes obsessive and takes over and you start. The thing I wonder is, you know, I've heard countless times that great comics are sort of like deep sociologists who need to recognize, uh, you know, like the pain and struggle of people in a very intimate way and therefore suffer themselves as a result. Like, do you think that's true? Have you seen that? And do you find yourself going down some of those wormholes where you sort of need to constantly reflect so much on the things that are awkward or painful or strange for people to be able to, um, you know, uh, deliver that to to like an audience?
2: I mean, I would say this, like to answer, like it's a three-folded question that you're asking and I would say, have I met people that are extremely funny on stage and extremely—they uh, have a persona on stage, and and that persona is not the persona off of stage? Absolutely, uh, you know, I've met comics that seem so full of life and and just energy, and w- when they're on stage, they're in their happy place, and then as soon as they get off stage, they they can't they can't even call an Uber to come get them. They can't even balance a checkbook. They can't, they're so just, It that is everything that they live for. And and, and if they don't have people helping them, then you're like, wow, that's a scary moment. Then I also, have comics that will go out and, and just crush and just be so funny. And when they get off stage, they're so still... Um, asking people around them or asking you, was that funny? Like I've had, you know, I've had comedians that, that, that have multiple specials and multiple, they've had multiple just, accolades and things in their life and you know they're a real comic because when they walk backstage there's this moment when you're waiting or you're sitting in the room or you're where they are and they have this look in their eye for even though they crushed it they have this look at their eye where they make eye contact with you and the look says was that funny right was that funny dad 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 mom mom dad did you see me the little boy mom mom was i funny mom 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 can you get off the phone mom dad did you see me score the goal and it's this weird Moment, and so, with bigger comics, it's it's a second, and with other, you know, maybe other comics, it lasts longer, and maybe it's the car ride home, and it's the talking and back and forth. But like, you know, that's when you know, like, you're you're a comic um, has that moment where they're they're just they just want to know, are they funny? Like, I remember Jim Brewer, you know, told this told this crazy story about. um I'm um, spacing on his name right now. The you know the guy that was on Saturday Night Live, the big dude that put the little tiny jacket on, Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Yeah. So Jim Brewer, Jim Berger told me this story, and he's talked about it before. But you know, Chris Farley came to do the show, and Jim Brewer, who you know I've I've got to open with for the last you know two years, and just became really good friends with. And he's such a spiritual dude, Brewer, and just really cool. But he told me this story once, and in short, it was it was Chris Farley was on the show and they're the Saturday night live and they're writing these skits and they're doing this and they're doing that. And, and Chris, it was when Jim and Chris did the El Nino thing oh, yeah Oh and, um, yeah, yeah. you know, weatherman and yeah. he's like, I'm El Nino. And like, funny. it was just, yeah. it was legendary. Yeah, it was so right. Good. But they were doing the, they were, they were working out the bits. And, um, at this point, you know, Jim's family, man, he's living in the suburbs, driving into the city or, you know, whatever. Um, and I think he might've had his first kid and, and, um, you know, he says that uh, he gets the phone call and he's like, it's like, you know, it's him on the phone. He's like, Jimmy, how are you? And he's like, yeah, you know, and they're, they're going back and forth and he's like, come out tonight with me. And he's like, nah, Chris, you know, I, I'm staying. He's like, nah, come on. You know, I really want you to hang out. Like I'm in town. Let's hang out. Let's hang out. And it's late. And like, Jim's like, Chris, dude, you know, I'm not going. And then right before he hangs up the phone, he says to, to Jim, he goes, Jim, am I funny? Oh man. And, like, you know, it was just so sad and just, just like, wow. Like, he's at, like, he's asking the, you know, to, hey, come and hang out with me. Okay, you're not going to do that. But can I ask you one question? Am I funny? Yeah. And, like, I remember when he told me that story, I was like, like, that always hit a a core with me because, Chris Farley, who you and I and everyone, we love. Yeah, I mean, the dude, love. the movies, yeah, the sure. bits, the, the, the physical comedy. I mean, and, and he's still, even he is asking a fellow comedian, Hey, am I funny? And it's not like, you know, at this point, I think he's a guest on the show. He's not even on the show. You know what I'm saying? He's like guest. And, um, that always stuck with me. So like, that's like the one question. And then the, the second thing is, is that, you know, for me going down the wormholes is, you know, I think, well, I always joke around, you know, like, you know, you're a comedian when the first time another comedian gets to do something that you didn't, and you go, I'm fucking funnier than them. Oh, you know, right. you see, sure, yeah. and you go, and I remember the first time I did that, like, what the fuck, man? I can't. And I go, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my God. I do not want to be that guy. Yeah, right, oh my. Right, right. Like, did I just say why did, Did I just say I'm funnier? Oh, and right then I I remember, you know, going. I am not playing that game because there's you don't win in that game, and you never sound cool, and you become bitter, and you just you just you it's it's over. It happens in music, it happens in sports, it happens in everything. So, dude, get over yourself, put your head down, and work fucking hard. I'm sure you've seen plenty of
0: uh, cautionary tales in music. At that oh point totally with that kind of dude mindset, but I, yeah. I but
2: I remember playing music and getting pissed why do they get that yeah, why course. did they get yeah, to do yeah. that and not knowing not knowing dude you know like you know even louis nowhere. CK yeah. yeah Louis CK wrote a great thing once and it was it was just a piece that he wrote where he said just worry about yourself quit worrying about other people just work hard and just do do what you need to do and quit worrying about everyone else around you. And I remember I was like, you know what? I'm taking that to heart. I'm just going to work on my shit yeah. and and just do what I got to do and 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 hopefully, you know, what I do connects and people will be into it. That was a big lesson. So that that's the second part of your question. You know, you know when do you kind of know like okay, I'm in it. I'm I'm in it for life is when right. I think you have those moments. Okay. And the last thing I the last thing I would say is that like for me, you know, with my comedy, it personally like you know like i think i talk a lot about my relationships with my kids and i talk a lot about relationship you know that i'm in you know with karen my wife and and some of it's good and some of it is you know some of it isn't good right and i think the stuff that makes people laugh the hardest sometimes is the stuff that's not good and you know um that's the stuff that someone will say to you you know did that really happen and when you say yeah it did they laugh but like when it was really happening in reality, it wasn't funny. It wasn't funny. funny, it, right. wasn't funny. Yeah, sure. it wasn't funny. You know, it wasn't funny when that moment happened, but um, you know what? The only way I can get through it is to make a joke about it. Like right. that's always been, I think the way I've gotten through super hard times, like even right now during the pandemic, you know, I can make jokes about it, but like, you know, it's a weird time because it's also like you, I don't, I don't like, I don't, I can't joke about not knowing how we go into the next, you know, level of our lives, you know, and like right now with anxiety and, and you're hearing, you know, just so many stories about, you know, people going through, you know, that have never experienced depression and anxiety. Like to me, that, that's the hard, that's the hardest thing to, to hear people going through right now. And it's, and, and then as a, as a comedian, you know, some people are like, well, you got to still make them laugh, you know? But then like, you're like, dude, I don't know. Like, Like, I don't, like. it feels trivia. You know? Yeah, exactly. You know, you're like, yeah, you know, I want to make people laugh, but I also want to be respectful. I, I, you know, I'm not going to just put my head down and be like, everything's great. You know, I'm also not going to be like, everything sucks because the only way I can get up in the morning is that if I do believe in humanity and, and positive energy and, and that we are going to get through this because if not, man, then I don't have any reason to get out of bed. So, you know, it kind of all plays into that, that psyche that I think you said that you love about certain comedians.
0: Right. Yeah. It's almost like a self-fulfilling thing at some point where, I mean, I've even seen musicians do it too. People who create conflict in their lives essentially to have more to write about. It's not conscious. You know what I mean? It's very subconscious and I don't think people would do it on purpose, but you know uh, sometimes you need to reach to to certain depths that are not fun.
2: To- I, you know what? It, I, I, I've said this to artists on the label and like you guys are a prime example of like when I worked with, you know, when we all worked together with Gaslight, mm-hmm. the reason Gaslight was it, one of the reasons, you know, besides, you know, the four of you, made this amazing sound. You had Brian with these lyrics and this vocal that was just like, okay, what the hell's going on? Then you had Alex with this guitar that I always said was like a paintbrush. It's like he was just – He was just painting these lines that you were nowhere. And then you had, you know, you and the other Alex, you know, laying down this foundation that was like brick and mortar, just like marble, just like old school, just like, wow. You know, like when you go to an old house and you're like, dude, this house ain't going to fall apart, bro. This is solid. (laughs) Like it was the two of you. And then you had these two just Just flowing energies, lyrical, painting pictures with words, and then this guitar that would, you know, just paint another color. And it was just, and it was just a perfect match. But the other thing was, and this is just my honest opinion, was there was no backup plan for Gaslight. (laughs) If that band didn't make it, You guys were going to be painting walls, yeah. hanging uh hanging uh sheetrock, yeah. uh, doing construction, um maybe uh, you know just digging holes. There was no no and I That's there true. was no fucking backup plan there was no well you know brian's valedictorian and he has a degree okay no No. that's not the case well you know benny you know he can always go back to playing a baseball for no no no, that's not the case well you know alex uh yeah nothing nothing's going on there like there is there is like you know there was there was like if this band does not make it then we are fucked yeah and I remember it was the same thing with Flog and Molly. Right. It was the same thing with Gogo Burdello. It was the same thing with the casual. Any band that I really believe went to the depths that that you guys went to. I mean, even I remember like on that first record, you know, you guys dug deep, and I and I feel like as an, as artists. That's where the great art comes from mm-hmm. because any of the bands that we love, whether it's the Ramones, whether it's Sinatra, whether it's the Beatles, I mean, any of these bands that we love, they all were in that place at one point yeah. when the Beatles, you know, were doing the residency and they're sleeping, you know, four in the same room and they're doing the three sets, the 10,000 hours that we all read about. Dude, that is fucking, if we don't make it, we're fucked. Right. Like there's a time where they're like, dude, you know, like you remember Ringo? He was like, yeah, I'm gonna be in this band for a while, and then I'm gonna go back to cutting hair. Oh, right. Like they, they didn't, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, uh, even the Stones when Charlie when they asked Charlie to join the band, they were like, yeah, he'll just join. He's such a great drummer. He'll just jam with us for a little while, and then it's gonna be over. Like so, like what I what I love is when bands are at that place in their life that there's just there's they're in the ocean, dude. And there's no lifeguard and all they're seeing is shark fins and big waves. And they're still got a smile on their face. And they're like, you know, no, we're going to, we're going to make this happen. And that's where I feel with comedians, with artists, with, with um, any type of entertainment, you, I I hate to say it, but I feel the best comes out of you when you're just, just, you're just holding on by a thread. Mm. And I feel like that's where the great art comes from and and that's one of the things that i really think made gaslight I- at least in my opinion when i was with you guys i mean the first time i see you guys san diego you know we're loading gear in and out we're hanging in the van i'm like wow okay this this is it when i was in wax dude right. it was the same thing yeah. we were done if if scott wheelan hadn't played
0: the 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 song we were done deal yeah. life right. or death got to be all in you got to be all in in case in case that thing comes your way right I really believe you got to be all in. I think anything in your life, I think whenever you're in and you're out and you're like, well, if this
2: doesn't work out, you know, I'll, I'll always do this. That's telling the universe you really, that you're really not, you're not, you really don't want it. You're not cut out for it. Yeah. And, you know, and the, yeah. and the universe is like, the universe is like, hey, check it out. This is just my opinion. I think the universe, when you throw it out to that, that, that thing, the universe is, it says, hey, check it out. Like, I can't give you, You're you're giving me one foot in, one foot out where there's another kid that he's got both feet in, both arms in. So I'm going with him.
0: And even beyond philosophically, I mean, it's just numbers. It's like there are thousands and thousands of people trying to do exactly what you're trying to do and working really hard. And yeah. And And there's a lot of people that are better. Exactly. And they're better. And you have, you have to at least, at least put in maximum effort. Like, like, Yeah.
2: I mean, how many people do you know? Like I look back on my life and I can straight up say like, like I was not uh, a great singer. I am not like some singer, like Eddie Vedder. He's a great singer. You know, Chris Cornell, he's a great singer. I was not a great singer, but I have had a career in music because I worked hard and I had life or death. And it was like, if this isn't gonna happen, then I'm fucked. And And great
0: fucking hair, Joe.
2: And great hair, you know. (laughs) Now that's one of the things I can't control. But (laughs) but I would say with I would say the same thing goes with any great band, you know? I mean, there you know as well as I know. It's like we're are there bands that existed that are better than Gaslight Anthem? Yeah, probably. (laughs) And you know what? They didn't put in the time, they didn't put in the effort, they didn't put in the the hard work, and instead, you know, they went Oh yeah, kind of this, kind of that. I mean, dude, how many drummers do you know? And how many guitar players, Brad, do you know that just ripped so hard? And you're like, why? why, That guy is like, you know, we all have the guy that we all remember as a kid. He was the guy. Like, why isn't he huge? Survivor's guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I remember as a kid, my dad, and when I was living with my dad, I was in my first band. And I remember there was a guy across the street from me. And he was a ripping guitar player and he was just a, he's just a great guy. And, um, and, um, his like, my dad and him started talking at one point and, um, the, the guy kind of insinuated, Oh, well, Joe's just in a punk band. And, um, you know, you know, it doesn't matter that he's doing shows, you know, my son's this, my son's that. And my dad fucking said it without anything. My son ain't playing in his bedroom. My son's doing shows. (laughs) and i remember i remember i was like fuck but it it hit home like yeah yeah, i'm not that good but you know what i'm hanging it out i'm not sitting in my bedroom playing the records i'm playing my own jams my jams aren't good i'm singing my i'm singing not well but you know what um we sold fucking uh a a keg of beer uh you know 40 cups (laughs) at two bucks a piece and here we go it's on you know and 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 that that was like a i remember when my dad said that and that was like wow Maybe I am doing it you know uh,
0: it's one of the things that's always endeared me to you, Joe, is like you, you you meet you and there's um you know kind of an East Coast hustler spirit about you where you're always trying to get something done, and then there's like kind of this restless spirit in you that that's always looking for what's next and not satisfied with the thing that's happening and i and I appreciate it, and I think it's what what makes you you I appreciate you, Joe. Well, I appreciate you saying that. And thanks <laughs> thanks for coming on our program. How nice. Dude, thank yeah, you guys, man. It, right? I
2: hope, I have to say this, I hope the people that listen to the program, like, I hope you're not all like, God, like, I hope I didn't talk too much, no, you know? No, like, no, I no. hope I did
1: okay. If you didn't um, talk too yeah. much,
0: I would have talked too much, and then Brad would have reprimanded me later. Oh know? my
1: God, I didn't even, yeah, I could do another whole, like, hour. Wow. I got a lot Trust more
0: me. questions. I didn't even get in the Ramon story, which I wanted, so, Ugh. you know,
2: we didn't even get to talk about you know, one of the things I gotta say was that last run was that two summers ago when, when you guys had me come out to open yeah, for yeah, you? Yeah,
0: yeah, in eighteen. Yeah. Oh my
2: god. That was so much fun. I'll never forget the the last show we did uh at the Riviera. Yeah. It Chicago, was such a it yeah. was so oh my God. I remember I remember that night because I always wanted to play the Riviera and you know, it was it was First of all, you know, you guys gave me a spot on your bus, so like we're hanging out, we're you know, it's just like one, it, from the moment I got there, like we're just joking yes, around constantly. It, yeah. it was so much fun, but um I remember uh I remember <laughs> I remember when Brian asked me, he's like, "Hey man, you know, I get a, you know, I'm going to we're going to do this and we're having different openers and we want you to come out and I had already opened for a few bands, like I'd open for Bad Religion and didn't go well. Right, yeah. I'd open for Angels and Airwave, didn't go well. But like I knew, I uh, I remember um, I opened up, God, I'm spaced on the name of the band. It'll come to me in a second. But I opened up for a band in New York and it went really well. And the reason it went well was when they asked me, I said, hey, I'll do this, but you guys have to tell your audience yeah. that a comedian is opening right, the show or right. I can't do it. Yeah. And they were like, got it. So when I showed up that night, everyone was like, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not starting circle pits. This guy's coming out. He's going to tell some jokes. Now, granted, you still got to be fucking funny. Sure. <laughs> but I remember I said to Brian, and I remember when he called me, it was like the beginning of the year. And, you know, it's like, he's all fresh. And I go, I go, hey, man. He's like, dude, we want to do this thing. What do you, th-? I'm like, oh my God, really? He goes, yeah, we want you to come out. And I go, okay. I go, hey, um, can I ask you one thing? He's like, yeah, anything. And I go, so the way it'll work, it, you got to come out every night and you got to introduce me. He's like, oh, dude, no problem. Yeah, yeah. Really, like yeah. that's not even an issue, and and I go are, and I remember in my head, I'm like, are you? You know, you're sure? Like, you have to come out. And you got to go. Hey, everyone. You know, this first guy coming up. He's a buddy of ours. You know, he signed our band, and he's our good, funny friend, Joseph. You know, like, and I said, Brian. After that. It's up to me. I gotta get a laugh. Cause that's the big thing with sure. comedy. You gotta get a laugh. Like the sooner you get a laugh, it's the sooner the audience trusts right. you. And then I always say to people, like you have a bank account with the, with the, with the audience and the more laughs you fill it up with, the more they trust you to go on a longer journey. So I remember though, I come out. Now you guys have already been on the road for a little while. So when I show up, you know, Brian's, you know, like he's been singing, he's trying to conserve his energy, his voice, da, da. and then all of a sudden he goes I remind him. I'm like, "Hey dude, tonight you remember you got to you got to go out." And he, and this is when I knew him and I were friends because anyone else, you know, you're going to be like, "Yeah, dude, I'm not going to be able to do yeah, that." Right. And he I remember he goes Really, and he did that Brian Fallon, you know, where he takes his hat off yeah. and runs his yeah. hand through yeah. his fucking hair, like, oh yeah. shit. <laughs> and then I remember the first night he goes out and he does it. The second night he goes out and he does it. I remember on the third night he says to me, "Why did I agree to this?" You know, like <laughs> because Brian's actually opening, you know, right, at that point. Right, and yeah, I'm like, right. "Yeah, dude." And if he hadn't have done that, oh my god, it would, you know. But the, vict- I'll just never forget that show at the Riviera, man. It was so packed, and. Uh, That was one. I have a photo from that night and uh, that was one. I still get people that text me. I saw you at the Ruby. Like they'll come to see me in Chicago and they literally came to see me at that show. And now whenever I come through doing comedy, they're like, first night we ever saw you is you opened up for Gaslight. We didn't know who you were. You went on. I love that. Yeah. But thank you guys for having me, Brad, you know,
0: Benny thanks for coming on man I really appreciate it dude I loved it yeah dude thank you guys for having me long overdue All right, see you Joe thanks be
2: safe you guys thanks you guys later Brad
0: I know how to clap I can clap loud I got really big hands I don't know if you know that about me (laughs) wait let me say that differently (laughs) yeah why'd you wink at me when you said that Benny I don't know if you know something about me Brad Got very large hands. <laughs> I got a pretty deep voice. It's funny. I thought I had a high voice forever, and I used to go into the studio and try to sing, and it always sounded really bad. And uh, I eventually just gave up on singing. And then, like somewhere in like my early thirties, I was like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, what the fuck? You got some range. I've hung out with all these singers all these years, and no one told me. I should try a little lower because that's just where it's more natural. I got laughed out of a studio when I was like 16 and it just permanently scarred me from singing. He never went Uh, back. I was in a band called full circle swing and we were recording our seven inch and we were all doing backups. And this group of people happened to be, they're from a town in an area in Jersey called Woodbridge They were kind of just like classic, classic Jersey hip hop skateboard shit talking kids. Like they were brutal, you know, and you couldn't get away with anything with these guys. You just got ripped apart. It was the spirit of the group, you know, and I didn't hate it. You know, I had fun with it myself, but I go into the studio. The line was sun on my face and I try it once. And I did it like super soul man. I was like, son of my first, like, you know, like, like white boy soul, like, like uh, Bob Seeger or something, you know, right. and, uh, and I just see the entire room burst out laughing, just going insane and just like, ah, you know, no. deaf comedy jam, knee slap laughing. <laughs> And I'm just like, oh, will fuck this someday. <laughs> like I'll never do this again in my life. Like sit in a room and do it by myself. And it's pretty much true. That's true. I've done a lot of backups. You know, a lot of I'm a backup singer on a lot of records. I used to keep a mic for gaslight shows, but I would just hit it. Yeah, probably more than I sang in it. Right. And what I sang in it wasn't good enough to keep hitting it. So I was just like, <laughs> ah, fuck it. Like I'm gonna stop. And then uh, that was it. I just went the way of. Straight drummer. Well, maybe it's time you develop those vocal cords again, dude. Well, I do have it. So it hasn't came out in a while because I'm not the man I used to be. But I did have a cheap whiskey drunk alter ego named Blind Benny who (laughs) sang very, very sexual blues songs. Really? Yeah. Very deep. Um, Lyrics in the spirit of, you know, Teddy Pendergrass. Like, I'm talking hot oils and sex and loving. Uh, Where do I... Can I hear it? I mean... (laughs) No, you can't. (laughs) But if yeah i mean for I real to, if you it's only if for we get a, if we get a handle of early times <laughs> and we just have a good feeling night and and you put a mic like you might get a whole album man so oh <laughs> yeah i mean it is possible this let's just say this person lives inside of me okay you know what i mean there's somebody who looks like teddy pendergrass who looks who lives inside wow me. yeah i gotta Which I, I gotta meet this guy is this tickling your mind, too? You're like, wow, a Benny is probably whiskey, a fantastic lover. <laughs> You're right, Brad. You're right. I'm very good. No. Sure. <laughs> uh, but that was a great interview with Joe. I bet Joe's a good lover. Of course he is. I would imagine he is. Us little guys are all good. You don't know that? <laughs> no, I don't. Is that a thing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you work harder? <laughs> yeah. I and mean, I feel like that flipped on its ear. That could be a very, very bad negative stereotype. Let's <laughs> stay away from that. But that was a, that was an awesome interview. I, I learned so much that I didn't know. That thing was Stone Temple Pilots and Scott Whelan playing the Wax song all, on K-Rock all night. Yeah, I didn't know that and, either, dude. I, I didn't hear about that.
1: I mean, I, I, met Je- I met him when he was in 22 Jacks. I knew Wax. I mean, I knew the band, but I didn't know any of his real history, really, with Wax. I would still like to talk to him about it.
0: There's a lot there. He's got stories. Stories on stories. That was awesome for him to come on. And everybody should definitely check out his comedy if you haven't. It's getting better and better the longer he goes. He's got some really funny bits. There's some good stuff up on YouTube, some full bits. And uh, you should definitely try it. He he did those shows with Jim Brewer opening for Metallica. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, shit's funny, man. He's like, it's turned in from, you know, like he was explaining in the podcast, just watching someone go from just being a storyteller to a, you know, it's like that thing where people probably all think they can do it, and it's so fucking hard. It's a good quote. Even when he was like, oh, I went up and I had to do seven minutes. Like, the idea of, like, That sounds terrifying. Yeah, that's being on a microphone trying to make people laugh for seven minutes. It feels like an eternity. I'm sure. Yeah. 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 So it's awesome, man. And he knows Pauly Shore. (laughs) You know? He was he was literally in Biodome. (laughs) He was in Biodome and Mallrats. Like Joe is like the king of the nineties. It's too fucking funny, man. (laughs) But it was awesome. And then, you know, my first impression of Joe was cool because You know, they came to see us in San Diego. You know, the other guy from Side 1 had come the night before in L.A. Right. He had come to San Diego, and we played an awful fucking show. It was, like, seriously, one of the worst, like, we could have ever played. It was just a bad venue, bad night. Nothing shook out right. And one of the things that uh, immediately stood out to me about Joe was He was there. Of course, I knew who he was. My brother was like a giant wax fan. So like, you know, I even had oh, that really? el- element going into right. it. Yeah. And Joe is like talking to me and he's helping me carry out my drums. And then he's still talking to me and he's helping me break down my drums. And I just got the impression in the moment. I'm like, this guy's not like trying to show up to me. Like, he doesn't even know he's doing it. Right. He's just like, he's like just talking and just into it. And he's just helping because he is. Yeah, because I he's guess been in what, bands. Yeah. Like, you know, and I, you know, and I was like, I don't know. That was one of those things when I first met him. I'm like, to me, that's impressive. Like, I like that. And then I remember when we first went to their office, we were taking a lot of meetings in those days. And, you know, they were really starting to get like pretty fucking corny. Um, and some of the shit people were like saying and presenting to us was like, right. really fucking corny. Um, really the wrong pitch. And we show up to the side one office and it's just like, bros, you know, (laughs) and it's like just a tray of tacos. It's just chilling. There's like, you know, uh, people from other bands just working there. And it's had this whole vibe that was just so different. It felt so like surfer punk rock California that it was just like, you know what? This doesn't feel like that big of a label. And they got a bunch of money because of fucking right. Floggy Molly and warp Tour comps and, like, all this shit. I'm like, this might be the best of both worlds here because, like, it feels real good and they got just as much as everyone else, so fuck it. Like, this seems cool, Yeah, you know? And it was, like, it was one of those impulses that was really easy to make, but just his his whole spirit and the way it goes about things was very welcoming even from the start, you know?
1: Yeah, he's an honest guy and, and you can tell, you know? Like... Yeah, he'll carry your drums without doing it for a reason. I Right. That's a funny story because Howie Klein, who was the president of Reprise Records, right. when we signed to him, did the same thing.
0: Oh, carried right,
1: right. yeah, came to his show. We played in LA, the Troubadour, and he made a point of like carrying, like trying to carry an amp upstairs, maybe he carried a guitar case. And um And I think he was genuine, but I also think, like, he knew what he was doing. You know, it wasn't like I can see Joe doing it. I can see what you're talking about. Like, he wouldn't know any better.
0: It would be instinct. I'm telling you, it was instinct for him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because
1: he'd done it a million times, dude. Right. I mean, he went from wax to 22 jacks, you know, like. Twenty two Jacks was was a great band, but you know, they were in vans, man,
0: you know, like Well listen, but let's not sit here and pretend like every singer of a band is helping to break down drums. Right. That's about maybe That's a good five point. to ten percent of singer has ever touched a drum stand in their life. That's a so good So it even goes a step beyond that, you know. I know a lot of punk rock singers who've never touched a fucking drum either. That's a very uh, good point. So any so- of you singers out there. Yeah, yeah. there's about three of you I've seen be cool. Turn you know? it around. <laughs> no, it's cool. Just carry your mic and drink more throat coat. You're fucking fine. <laughs> and go scare all the girls away before yeah. we can get our shit yeah. loaded in yeah. the van. Go hang out with the merch guy, whatever you're doing. Um, but Joe's around. He's j- just Joe Sib on Twitter, Joe underscore Sib on Instagram. He's got all of his comedy stuff on uh, on YouTube. He's doing the um, those little 15-minute segments through the Side 1 site that I think I'm going to be doing soon, too. Oh, nice. Yeah, so he's he's got a lot going on, as usual, and uh, everyone should check him out. Absolutely. And guess what, Brad? We have a Patreon.
1: Oh, yeah. yeah. Do we? Patreon.com
0: going, slash going off track? Yeah, there's stuff on it. Uh I wrote some stuff. You've been posting some stuff. Yeah, we got some more some stuff I need to get up. video. Maybe you can see a video of this with me creepy in the dark. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, appreciate it. If anyone uh, wants to help us out, keep it going. Um, that's nice. And uh, thanks to everyone who jumped on. I saw Heath Saracino's on. Yeah. This is awesome. Appreciate that, man. That's- and I'll never forget your brother hooking me up with mozzarella wedges at the TGA Fridays in the Somerville <laughs> Circle. Appreciate that. Good looks. And, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I appreciate anyone helping us out. We want to do this for a long time, and we want to make it sound good and get cool guests. That's another thing on the Patreon. If anyone's got, like, someone, a guest... That they've been like, oh, I would love to hear those guys talk to him. Throw, write me a message because I'm curious. Like, who's who's someone like you would want us to talk to? Yeah, know? I'm always saying, like I told you I'm starting to view booking going off track like a mixtape. You know? Yeah. Well, it is a mixtape, dude. Like, and now we had Tim from Rise Against and Joe Sib, some big heavy hitter singers. We gotta like break it up a little bit next week. Be a little <laughs> cool, you know. <laughs> Got heavy hitter, maybe heavy hitter vocalist. We had Tom Wally stories two weeks in a row. We got to go deep. All right, maybe a drummer. <laughs> no, then no one will listen we'll find someone. <laughs> unless you can score Tommy Lee or something. That's that's an episode of will go in the gutter. Who wants to hear us? You know, unless you killed someone or something. No, all right. Hey, how did you construct your drum parts on this record? <laughs> Click no thanks (laughs) all of a sudden this episode you would be like why did everyone click off eight minutes into that episode weird you know it was only 10 minutes long (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) listen i've been in the business long enough i know i've looked in the face of too many label executives who saw me as just just another I'm drummer. Replaceable part, man. Uh, yeah, I, def- I know it. I know it. <laughs> I know it for sure. They're like, "Yeah, yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> y- you're not important to me.") <laughs> <laughs> All she right says, Listen, kids, listen, kids. Drums are great. They're a beautiful instrument. They, they're great for your soul, But there's two things that are going to happen that you're going to have to get used to, okay, if you take it seriously. Something on your body is going to break and hurt really bad. Either a wrist, a lower back, a neck, an elbow, something like that. And you got to get used to getting no credit for your life's work. <laughs> you know, just that little simple pill to swallow. I don't easy. know about that. It's as easy you're in an elite group of,
1: uh, of drummers who can actually play the instrument.
0: I need to talk to you and Joe Sidmore. You two make me feel good. <laughs> I'm going to get on side calls with you guys. Be like, hey, guys, you just stroke my ego a little for a couple minutes. <laughs> Big Daddy needs it to get through today, you know? Anytime, Benny. Anytime you Thanks, need strokes, Brad. just let me know. <laughs> I know you're good. You're good. Get a couple more Sierra Nevadas in you. I'm going to go get another one. This one's empty. All right. Do your thing. But everybody, thank you for coming and visiting. Going off track this week, and uh, yeah, we'll be back soon. You got anything to leave the people with, Brad?
1: Uh, Much love. Stay safe.
0: No (laughs) bed of roses. No No pleasure pleasure cruise. cruise. (laughs) I consider it a challenge. Challenge, brother. The whole human race. What is it? That's your note. That's your note.